Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to part four of A Dance with Dragons, a super mega ginormous episode for you. I'll explain in one moment. Firstly, of course, welcome back to the Isle. It's good to see you here. I am Sir Buckley, your resident green person here on the Isle, and I'm speaking to you from a still sunny England. It is clinging on. In fact, it was a very warm weekend, so you know I've got the energy here to take you through this next part of our journey. The cold has also arrived, I will admit, but the sun is still strong and that's all we need. Firstly, before we get going here, a thank you, of course, to everyone joining, Patreon and public, we love you both. It gives me great joy to tell you that the numbers are still going very, very strong for Dance with Dragons. They're really high at the moon, I hope that continues, I hope you're enjoying what we're doing. Certainly, you're proving it with the downloads, you're proving it with nice comments. If you would like to do a review or do a rating on your various places where you listen to this, well, that would always be lovely. Or you can just talk to me. I like that as well. While I'm doing my thank yous, you know it's going, I must say thank you to some of our wonderful, wonderful patrons. And I'd like to highlight Lord Commander, Namian Darklin, the wonderful KM, Archmaster June, the healer of the lesser poxes, of course. And also, I'd like to welcome Aegon the Six. Yes, we have him here, which is good timing for this particular episode. We have him here. He's a long-time patron, but he's moved up into these extra generous of members. So, of course the deepest of appreciations and thank yous to those and to all our patrons and to all listeners as well. If you would like to come over to Patreon and see what's happening, we have a little conversation about comics like I mentioned last week at the moment. I do have something to say about the next patron-only episode, but I'll probably keep that for next week to be honest because, like I say, I think we're going to be a bit busy this time round. And in general, it's just a wonderful community that I am ever so thankful for. So if you'd like to take a look, please do so. One more thing before we get going, I will try to get to it as quickly as possible today. One more thing, remember... Each week you can guess before the episode comes out which chapter is going to get the most airtime on that particular episode. Of course, by the time you listen to this, too late to vote on this week's, but next week, get involved, see if you can get a point, see if you can get on our leaderboard. Last week, no correct answers. John 2, right at the beginning there, snuck in for the win, so our leaderboard looks the same still. At Petriofell and at Elendor F are still in the lead with one point, so you can catch them very easily. I'll be tweeting that out each week, so keep an eye on my Twitter, as I know you always do, and get involved. We'll see who wins at the end of this 19-episode-long journey we have. And speaking of long or big journeys, well, you might have been able to see. Perhaps the reason these numbers are up so much is because the length of these podcasts is up so much. We've gone for nearly three hours on each of these scraps and scrolls so far. Incredible jump in content, of course. Incredible jump in work for me, I might admit as well. It's been a lot of hard work lately. But again, I should probably give thanks because you're always so supportive. When I have a bit of a moan, when it's when it's gaming, when the aisle is a bit heavy, some of you are very, very nice out there. So I appreciate that. But it is fun doing such big episodes. And again, it might just so happen today because we have not four. Yes, it's nearly three hours of four chapters. Well, actually, it was nearly three hours of three chapters on the first episode. But today we have five. Yes, cue that Jordan Peele sweating meme. That's me looking at my computer. Can it handle a five-chapter episode? Well, we will find out. And those five chapters, as it happens, in terms of just runs of importance, important moments, game-changing moments all strung together, well, it's pretty hard to beat this anywhere in the series, to be honest. Let me tell you who we've got. We're going to start with Daenerys 2. The problems in Marine are bubbling, Quaif returns, and we find out what is happening under the pyramid in Marine. We then go to a whole new level of creepiness. Really prepare yourselves for this one. It's time for Reek slash Fion 1. Yes, we're getting there. You know that's going to have a big intro. The creepy, spooky vibes are going to continue because from there, we're on to Brand 2. It's the end of Brand's journey. We meet 
possibly the most important person to this whole story we don't know, in Bloodraven, down in the cave. Then it gets a little bit more normal, at least. Back on Tyrion 4, we're back to Essos, but he's discovering something equally important in terms of identities and who's on this boat with him. And then we end, luckily, just like last week, with another Davos, Davos 2, where he finally makes it to White Harbour. So we'll talk about that a little bit more in the Davos chapter, because he's not quite on the same level as these first four, but just tot that up in your mind a minute. Imprisoned dragons, and the reveal that Theon is alive, the meeting of Bloodraven, and then the unveiling of young Griff being possibly a king. They don't get much more important than that, so this is going to be quite the run today. Hence, I think we should probably get going, if I'm honest with you. I don't want to wait around too long because we're going to have a lot to talk about today as always make sure you're tuning in on sundays with history of westeros i know you are already keep saying your thank yous to aziz and Asher because i know the work they put in thank you for joining me here each week as well again if you want to rate and review if you want to look at the patreon if you just want to give me a tweet send me an email i'm happy to do that as well love chatting to all you guys that makes it all worth it but for now let's get going let's begin with daenerys 2 so it's pretty surprising we've waited this long for a second Daenerys, given that Tyrion and Jon are both already up to three. And I should have probably mentioned this in the prepper episode about extended gaps, because that's normally something we look at for that type of conversation, but it slipped my mind, so let's do it here. It's harder in general, because we've got so many POVs of dance, let's just restrict it to our big three, our Triforce for a moment. And Daenerys, in terms of who has the biggest gaps, is the clear answer, thanks to her later disappearance on Drogon. She just goes from the book for a while. But for references sake, John has a few six chapter gaps sprinkled throughout, but he's mostly pretty short, he's mostly pretty together, although he will have a ten chapter gap prior to his final chapter. Whereas Tyrion has even shorter gaps than John at the beginning, though he does have two niners at the end once he gets to those marine slave camps and actually stays in place for once. Danny obviously has the largest with that 18 chapter gap to finish the book. Other than that, she's mainly on par with the other two and actually beats them both out for shortest gap with just a one chapter break at one point. Although oddly, her second largest gap is here at the beginning with eight between her first chapter and her second. So that flies against the norm for these three who normally have their larger gaps towards the end. We know that makes sense because George has to fit in a few of the feast crew as the timeline catches up with itself, but it's still strange considering how central she is to the overall plot and just the feel of dance here. Only John can match her in terms of her chapter's general tones also being representative of the entire book. But anyway, what about this one we are dealing with today? What is the deal with Danny 2? Well, I would say that this chapter is one of the best, if not the best, at really conceptualising the inner struggle of Danny, the conflict of, do I want to be a dragon? Do I not want to be a dragon? And obviously, we've already spoken about it a lot in Danny 1. We're going to speak about it in every Danny chapter. That's the point of her book. But I think this one just lays the argument out there the best of, what is it I want and how do I want to get it? And really, not being able to come up with any clear answers, unfortunately. We get a really vulnerable Danny in this one, a very stressed out. I do not know what I'm doing. I'm trying to do my best, but how do I get there? How do I do it? It's a bit of a mystery. And speaking of mysteries, we get a lot more of that with Quake's reappearance and, of course, some more court time. So it's very different. Two ends of the spectrum. We have the ultra-magical, the ultra-mysterious, and we have the boring tedium of rule as well. And again, mixed over all that is just this, this argument that's going to keep going on inside Danny's mind. She thinks she makes a decision here we'll see how long that lasts later on and it is a very emotional very very emotional end to the chapter and i would advise you very much to connect this to 
the last chapter of last week, John 3. Because obviously in the book, these two are next to each other and you will struggle to find two side-by-side chapters that mirror each other this much in terms of those emotional endings. But we'll get back to that when we get there. Maybe we should just start at the beginning, shall we? Daniel 2 begins in a way that is horrible for everyone, being woken in the middle of the night to be told about a death. We can already see where Danny's stressed mindset is, with her immediately thinking, something is wrong. She gets that feeling instantly because she's already surrounded by a world of bad news. So what's the latest? What's next in line to hurt her? I think we can all sympathise with that feeling of waking up and just thinking, oh, something horrible has happened. Cersei also experienced it back at the beginning of Feast. And the fact that Danny was deep in a dream of actual happiness, with Dario for once, makes the sharp contrast of waking all the worst. So she wakes, people start telling her things, but it's taking a little while to process. Iria's telling her something specifically, but it doesn't make any sense. So she asks for wine, so that she may drown her dream, she says. And that's the earliest comparison we can make with the kill the boy mantra. Drown the dream, kill the boy. In this case, it's Dario. Dario is something she cannot have if she wishes to be queen, even if she will understandably relent on that point later on. Anyway, back to this news. It becomes clear. Last chapter started out with a harpy killing. This one starts out by reporting there have been even more, so it's an effective way to mark the early progress of Danny's journey here. And her problem is getting even worse, unfortunately. Her earlier efforts that we saw haven't worked, so what is she going to try next? Hence, we're going to flip the page. We're going to keep reading, because we need a resolution to these problems. And even if it was just the same as last time, that'd be bad. But it's actually getting worse. It's been happening more or less every night until we reach this new, solemn mark of nine deaths in one single night. This is clearly deeply dangerous to Danny's rule and her grip on the city. If nine of her own men or her own supporters can be killed every night with no repercussions or no ways to stop it, the message of weakness is pretty clear. You're not going to have much faith in that kind of ruler. But I feel that's almost a secondary point to Danny. The main issue for her personally is that more and more of her unsullied are dying and it hurts her deeply. She didn't free them for this kind of life to just lead them to death. She didn't want them to follow her so they could just be killed in alleyways. She genuinely cares for each of these people and this whole business is only going to increase the pressure and guilt that she unfortunately places on herself. And not only that, but she also needs these guys. If she ever does get back in the field, they're going to be critical to her success. None can truly match them, supposedly. And here they are wasting away in her service, being killed again in alleyways and stuff like that, far from their true calling. Although it should be noted that it's not just Unsullied, but now freedmen are also being killed as well. Either way, the general message is clear. To associate with Daenerys means disaster and death. And we'll continue with that idea in a second. I just want to set this quote in here because it's great for just recognising the kind of person Daenerys is. Your slave Masande. Shuki had a taper in her hand. My servant. I have no slaves. Yes, Daenerys just won't let anything slide. Even in this horrible moment where she's waking is obviously news to be dealt with, she's not going to let anyone say the wrong type of word here. She's completely different from her ancestors in that kind of regard. There's pressure from all sides to relent on this type of thing, and in general, like, people want slavery back, but she won't even let one word slide in front of her. That's how committed she is to the bit. This is what all the difficulty is for. But anyway, just wanted to get that in there because I like that quote. Grey Worm is the one who supplies the details of these killed people. They were armed. They were armoured. They went out in pairs, as we discussed last time, but it didn't matter. Some were killed in usual ways, with crossbow bolts, some by falling stones, that's slightly more unorthodox, but two were poisoned at a wine shop. Now, crossbows are fairly easy to see. You can defend against them to a certain degree. There are probably a million places in Marine where heavy stone can be dropped, especially if it looks like the version we got on the TV show. That's much harder to defend, but a drink handed to you with a smile? How in the hell do you defend against that? Must Danny stop her and Sullied and the other freedmen from interacting with the locals in any way, shape or form? If so, how the hell are they going to do their job? That just doesn't make sense, it's not logistically possible. Such is the nature of occupation. 
This simply is not winnable for Daenerys unless she wants to roast the whole place to the ground. She and her unsullied will never know the places where you can be ambushed by crossbows or falling stones. They will never know who to trust and where to drink, at least not to the level required. Being in enemy territory is simply not a winning formula. And I believe George is drawing lines between one Targaryen and another as we connect Daenerys once again to Aegon the Conqueror and the time that he did not conquer down in Dawn. He faced a very similar problem. Knowledge of the surrounding land, or a city in this case, allows for effective guerrilla warfare and the gentle bleeding of men and resources. That's what they're doing. They don't need to take Daenerys out in one fell swoop. They can just pick them off, pick them off, pick them off, and they still got what they desire. Like the Dornish used to pop out from behind their rocks and take a few Targaryen soldiers out before disappearing back into the dunes. The Myronese can similarly stick their head out the front door, kill two unsullied, and then become part of the background again before anyone says boo. They know the physical geography of the city. They collectively have a better communication and information network than Danny can ever hope to have, and they have each other. They've got numbers, financial support, the ability to hide either in shadows or in plain sight, or more importantly, behind the truly innocent, which means that Danny is completely and utterly outmatched here. And add into that, at least Aegon the First didn't have any secret Dornish people in his war council. Danny isn't even sure her own team aren't enabling this to happen. So it's just an impossible situation. And much smarter people than me have mentioned in, on Reddit and other places that George was writing this at a time where foreign occupation was very much a focused talking point given the USA's invasion and occupation of Iraq. So it will be definitely interesting to make those comparisons as we go. I won't get too much into that. I'm obviously not nearly qualified enough to make those comparisons myself, but it is interesting. Now that Grey Worm has given the names, Danny realises that Mossador, one of the slain, was Missandei's brother, and it's not just the men themselves that are suffering because of her, in her mind, but also whatever loved ones remain to them and their friends as well. We'll return to Missandei and her involvement in this in a moment when Danny has a chance to speak to her herself. Initially, Danny's response is the same as before. Question whatever captives we have, but don't go overboard. Part of this tangled web is we've got no idea who's involved and who's not, and we can't just start blaming everybody. But then she hears of these freedmen who also died on top of her six unsullied. And the one of note is Rylona Ree, a harpist who had her fingers cut off before she was killed. So we see that death is not enough for friends of Danny. Absolute cruelty is also what they can expect, as we're left to assume that this poor woman was left alive for however long to absolutely despair of what these people had done to her hands and her gift. This would be horrific to anyone, of course, but to someone who loves the harp as much as she? Well, if you've read Name of the Wind, that book does an amazing job of getting this idea across, how much certain musicians will love and cherish their hands, because, because that's obviously how they interact with their greatest love. So this mental image really makes us and Danny sick to our stomachs. It's this, as well as realising that Rylona died specifically because she was supporting Danny's new regime and propping up the rights of the newly freed slaves, that has Danny rethink her previous policy on torture. Mercy, thought Danny. They will have the dragon's mercy. Skahaz, I've changed my mind. Question the man sharply. So there we are already. The same struggle that we've already spoken about in bunches. How much of the dragon do I let out? And you note here that Danny equates her dragon identity with anger and sharpness and violence. She'll say in a moment, her fury was a fire in her belly. There is no gentleness in this side of her. Initially, she declares the father, this captured wine cellar, be tortured. But when Skahaz proposes torturing his daughters in front of him instead, Danny is so angry that she actually allows this and crosses a new line for her. A lot of her and John's time will be taken up deciding which of the uncrossable lines they want to cross in the name of overall progress. We already started that last week with the Double John chapters. We're going to see it more as we go. And it's all such a catch-22. She clearly cannot let these kinds of actions go unpunished. She has to show her people that she will protect and avenge them. Putting a father through this horrific ordeal of watching his children be tortured, is that supposed to endear her to the locals or will it just fan this flame further and make the problem even worse? 
There's no logical answer, to be fair, but Danny isn't looking for logic right now. She's hurt by the loss of her friends. She's hurt by the cruelty given to Ilona Ree in her name. She wants to make someone else hurt as well. She's had enough, basically. She doesn't want her own people to suffer for their stupid sake that she already hates, so she also smartly reverses her policy of where the Unsullied go by putting them back on the walls and the gates where they'll be safe for now. Perhaps not when the armies come, but for now. Let's put the city to work for the city. If you're going to claim you're on my side, then you can damn well prove it. And then at least if people are being killed, it's not people of her own side, it's people that she cares about. You, Miranese, have to put something on the table as well. You claim to be with us, then put your coin down. At the same time, Skahaz, who seems to be enjoying all these extra responsibilities he's suddenly getting, is also given some extra power by forming his shavepate ranks. That isn't going to have too much importance now, but later on, when Danny has fled, it's yet another faction to think about as we go, and it makes all these decisions seem all the more influential just looking forward to the future. It is Reznak who complains about these decisions, feeding into Danny's early worries about him. These sites that these Miranese families trying to get away are just retiring to nicer areas, getting out of danger. They definitely, definitely aren't going to join the enemy, he claims. It makes no difference for Danny. She will keep their money and their children regardless. That's not a traditional Danny tactic, not for the children anyway, but she feels that that's the wall she's backed up against. She has to get results, so she has to do more line crossing. The Zaks, the Zak family, they've always been hostile to Daenerys. She already ran into one while holding court on crimes of the sacking back in Danny 1. The Merricks are similar, and both will have ships blockading Marine later on. Both will give up children as hostages, and both will have none of these children harmed, because Daenerys does not want to cross that particular line. They are afraid for their children, Reznak said. Yes, Daenerys thought, and so am I. That particular line, so far, is still uncrossable for her, thankfully. And it all ties into themes we've mentioned a thousand times before, so prevalent here early on. We've compared her to Ned and to Jon, trying to do the same thing of keeping children safe. Jon shares this horrible weight of maybe having to act against children, but promising he never will. And it's also something the fandom is talking about a lot of late as well, thanks to some recent news about Stannis and what he's going to be getting up to with Shireen. Oh dear. All of it is about realising how ultimate power cannot help all people. She needs something other than Dragon's Breath to truly help everyone, which is such a, just a difficult task to figure out what. So yes, we have this big children theme in this solemn chapter already, to join with many other themes in this book. It seems like we're presenting children in danger seemingly every chapter. We're talking about it every time out. Danny is concerned about being a mother to all, as Masande names her. She worries about her people in general, the ones closest to her, and of course her main children, the ones she is now going to have to separate from in order to protect other people's children. Yet she allows these daughters of a wine cellar to be tortured in order to find peace. It's just such a bog in terms of right and wrong, how far are you supposed to go to reach that eventual goal, which means justify the ends. Even later on in the chapter, she's going to be thinking back about Rhaenys and Aegon and how they were killed in the name of war. So again, we're just definitely relating to this theme of dead children. We can even draw up some Cersei comparisons thanks to this torturing idea. We've compared the two recently, given that they are both queens, and now both have ordered torture, like I say. That looks comparable on paper, but we know how vastly different these two are in motives. Cersei tortured the Blue Bard to save her own skin, to lie and to frame people and just to generally be evil like Cersei is. Whereas Daenerys is doing it to try and protect people and stop murders. Okay, that's fair, but guess what? It still ends up with someone getting tortured. Retiring from this awful beginning is where Danny finds her little Missandei and tries her best to comfort her. 
considering Masande has now suffered extra loss after already living through unimaginable hardship. And again, Danny truly believed she had been able to save this girl from pain and improve her life. She takes some time to talk to her scribe and check if there's anything she can do to make her feel better, even if it means losing her, which would be another heap of pain for Danny personally. But Masande is going to keep playing the Davos role and stays loyal. She says she feels safe with Danny still. Considering what's happening in the city already, and definitely considering the end of Danny 1, that's incredibly good for Danny to hear right now. More responsibility, sure, more weight, but still good. The emotional connection between these two is so wonderful to witness, it's the closest Daenerys has been to having a little sister really. And she lets the emotion of the moment open up some of her own vulnerabilities. I'll read the quote to you. It is so hard. To be strong, I don't always know what I should do. I must know though. I'm all they have. I'm the queen. The, the... Mother, whispered Masande. Mother to dragons, Danny shivered. No, mother to us all. Masande hugged her tighter. So you can see the weight dragging on Danny. She wants to be strong and a leader and help everyone, but she's not only weighed by the normal difficulties of war, but the fact her children might be child killers as well, that all she might be good for is death and destruction. But Masande pulls her back from that angle. No, she seems to say, you can be both. And I really hope Masande has the chance to explore that way of thinking with Danny further in the future. I'm hoping they'll get reunited. As we go further, we'll probably concentrate on Masande more, especially after Daenerys leaves and we realise her true value and apparent loyalty. Some call it into question, but personally I've seen nothing to make me doubt. Can you make the argument that Masande holds some grudge for Daenerys putting her brother on a patrol that got him killed? Mm, not really. That's weak, I think, and it ignores so many other factors. Danny advises her friend to get some sleep, but she can't do it herself. How can she? She tries to seek comfort in dreams of home, but the problems of Marine are just too dominating in her mind. Instead, she goes out onto her terrace to think on this city that she hates, how it is full of normal people doing normal things, eating and making love and dying. People just being people. But then there's this other side, the sons of the harpy, plotting and killing and hating. And up here on her lonely top of the pyramid, they all look the same, which is very much the problem. She was the blood of the dragon. She could kill the sons of the harpy, and the sons of the sons, and the sons of the sons of the sons. But a dragon could not feed a hungry child, nor help a dying woman's pain. And who would ever dare to love a dragon? So that's a pretty good roundup of what we've been trying to say about her conversation with Masande and our early talk of her dance theme. She won a lot of people their freedom through force of arms, but that doesn't nurture anything. That doesn't help it grow after the initial victory. That is an entirely different skill that she doesn't know she has no matter how much she wants it. We've said it before and we'll say it again, but so much of this book is about that struggle. She will make a decision to become the dragon at the end of the book. And while it will certainly win her some victories, I truly hope she does find a way to get this feeling of life affirmation and doing good after the fact as well. How to grow something after the burning. I hope she merges the two ideas, the two sides of herself, although I'm not sure she'll ever get the opportunity. If you want my guess, I say she just begins to learn the symbiosis of how to do both and then immediately gets called north to truly reign death and destruction. Mm. Back on the terrace, she still needs that mental comfort. So she allows herself to think of Dario Naharis a bit. She's sent him away in a similar vein to what John has done with his friends because she believes he will interfere with her duties of being a queen. But there are other worries as well about these three treasons and cell swords switching sides. Nothing comes of it here, but it is some good foreshadowing for later because that's definitely going to happen. All in all, it's been a pretty rough opening to the chapter, so Danny does finally take the opportunity to relax with a bath on her terrace. She's just throwing some bubbles and maybe some more daydreaming about Dario, and we're set, that sounds like a nice time. But no, even privacy is denied to poor Daenerys, as her bath, or maybe her dreams, who knows, are invaded by someone we've not seen in an age. Yes, it's quaif time. Quaif, oh quaif. Why do you do this to us? Why do you confuse us so? The mystery is something we've never been able to resolve. Not last time she showed up, not really for this time. 
not overall. We do not know who she is. We do not know what she wants, where she comes from, anything, really. That is one of the larger, clueless mysteries we have in the fandom still. We can theorise all day long, but really, George has given us nothing yet. Hopefully, in the future, I really do hope so, but not yet. Like I say, that's in the overall. That's taking this one to, into account. Even right here, just focusing on the last time we saw her, we've not learnt a single thing about her since. Nothing has been concluded. Danny has made her own conclusions because certain things she, she said fits into certain places, but we as readers still hold all that mighty suspect and figure that we'll eventually learn how wrong we are at some point down the road, because we normally do. Unfortunately, Quaith isn't here to provide any answers on last time, just to provide new questions and riddles for Danny to obsess over. Now, okay... It is annoying that we don't know anything, but I'll personally say I really like Quaife as a character. I like her mysteries. I do look forward to finding out something as we go on into the future. This time around, Quaife starts off as she means to go on. She came here another way, yet she is not here. The guards did not see her, and they won't now. Yes, it's going to be one of those conversations where nothing makes sense or is explained properly. Wouldn't it all just be easier if Quaife is trying to help Danny or get something across if you just said it straightforward? No, George doesn't allow that. Most importantly, and straight away, we get a glass candles reference. You know how much I love those. I obsess over the glass candles. It's just so important after the ending of Feast where we really went head over heels for the info we got via Sam and Marwin and the others. We know the glass candles are real. They're true. And as well as reminding us that Marwin is headed here in the first place and given some of his explanations, it likely explains how Quaife is appearing here. And it certainly mixes well with what she's just been saying about how she's here but not here, blah, blah, blah. So perhaps the candles just project into a person's mind or you can choose specifically who to talk to while not appearing to others as she claims about the guards here. That could be damn important if you need to talk to someone who's a captive or something of that nature. Or on the flip side, it looks like there's no defense against stopping this or not letting someone, like there's no doorbell to ring. So the image just appears whether in your mind or elsewhere. So let's just say, let's just imagine that Euron gets his hand on a glass candle, which may well happen, he is near them. He could use it to terrorise someone, couldn't he? He could appear again and again, completely unstoppable. Imagine how much someone like him would enjoy such a thing. Maybe he uses it to check on Victarion, sees that he's planning to take Daenerys for himself, and decides to drive his brother insane. It would certainly work on someone like Victarion, wouldn't it? Just a thought, just a thought. Again, as within Feast, there are just major, major implications on the glass candles and their importance to the story, especially Danny's story and her invasion. I will not repeat myself here as much as I might like to, but I think logistically, they are going to be the hinge on which the story swings. I think they just change everything, and really, they could get George out of a bind. But again, I spoke about that enough in Feast. You can go back and listen to that Final Feast episode if you want, because I do go off on them just a little bit. But anyway, I'll let that slide this time. Anyway, that's just the first of Quaife's references. Danny doesn't understand that one, or what follows, but we do. We certainly understand more than we did the first time she came around anyway. The purpose behind telling Daenerys of them and what they might mean for the future is a little more up in the air, but at least we know some of the general subject area. We pretty much know all that Quaife says, let me quote it for you here. Hear me, Daenerys Targaryen. The glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her the others. Kraken and dark flame. Lion and griffin. The sun's son and the mummer's dragon. Trust none of them. Remember the undying. Beware the perfumed seneschal. We really know that pretty much all she says is correct. All these parties are heading for Daenerys. The pale mare does come in the form of disease, etc, etc. Having said that, She's not all-powerful, or not all-truthful, perhaps. In terms of power, she says the griffin is coming. And at this moment, yeah, that's true, that's his current intention. But he never gets there, even if the lion does, or nearly does, he's basically next door. Secondly, she names the sun's son as someone to distrust. Why? 
We know that others are either unscrupulous or downright nasty, maybe besides Tyrion, but thanks to Quentin's recent chapter and the reread in general, we know that he has good intentions. That's not to say going with him would automatically be the best choice or work out for her, but I don't think Quentin would ever have been intentionally untrustworthy. Unless, unless, Quaithe already knows that Quentin will eventually release the dragons and counts that as untrustworthy, who can say what she knows and doesn't know. If we were to ask her after the fact, I'm sure that's what she would say, but it seems a bit of a stretch. Let's give Quentin the benefit of the doubt for now. Well, the other option is that Quaithe has some agenda that keeps Danny from allying with Dawn for whatever reason, who knows. She also names the Kraken and the Dark Flame. Now, he doesn't arrive in this book either, but he is coming. Is this dark flame, though, supposed to represent Euron's intention? Or is it something to do with his burnt hand and the fact that he's bringing Macquarie with him? Finally, in this section, is the Mummer's Dragon. I think we're all pretty set on this being Young Griff, who again is supposed to be coming Danny's way, but doesn't in the end. Although, it could meet eventually. Either way, there's some holes to poke in this. Quaife is definitely not all-powerful, or not telling all she knows. She also mentions the Pale Mare, and I wonder if we can equate that with Danny herself. Perhaps we could have once, when she still viewed herself as Dothraki. She still does, to a degree, and we figure we'll be revisiting that side of her in early wins, so it's something to keep in mind. Quaithe finishes the paragraph by drawing attention back to the Undying. Now, what's Quaithe's connection to them? Why does she want Danny to recall something she already obsesses over? Is it just to protect her from betrayal, perhaps? Or again, to push her down a certain line that we can only guess at? At the same time, she warns of the perfumed Seneschal, and, well, we all know the many, many theories about that, I won't go into them now, but the guess is supposed to be pointed at Resnak straight away, even if that seems almost too easy. Danny does us a favour and demands to know of Quaith's purpose, but the response is only to show you the way. How very Mandalorian of her. We're all hoping that that means to show her the way to Westeros and out of this place, and Danny certainly hopes so as well. She recalls Quaith's first riddle for us. The riddle will have to go forward by going back, etc., etc. You know the lines. But Quaith interrupts and finishes with this. Daenerys, remember the Undying. Remember who you are. So while Danny is thinking the woman was posing a riddle of geographic information, I think and hope that Quaith's advice is actually directed at getting Daenerys to believe in herself and her Targaryenness. I hope that Quaith is warning of all these different suitors coming as a way to tell Danny to not tether herself with any of them. Bet on yourself. You did all this. You are strong enough to do it again if you embrace who you are. I think that's the reason for this extra emphasis she puts on Danny's name, and maybe even her telling Danny to remember the Undying. Remember the time you defeated a bunch of evil wizard spirits by embracing your inner fire and literally having a dragon get his fire breath on? Do that again. That fits so neatly into the themes of the book and Danny's internal struggle, and the fact that eventually, when she is alone and away from all those outside influence that Quaife just warned against, Danny does turn to her dogarianess slash dragonness once again. I'm really hoping I'm right in that. It would make sense, logistically, given what we're about to find out at the end of the chapter of what Danny's done with her dragons, that Quaife thinks, oh, she's really straying from the line here, I need to get her back on track. Hence she appears. What are other reasons that Quaife would be doing it? Is she someone who wants to see Targaryens restored, magic returned? Does she know about the eventual threat of the others and Danny's part to play in it? Who knows, it could be any of them. I look forward to finding out. And just like that, she's gone and we get no more. It's definitely a mystery we're going to look forward to getting real answers on because as of now, again, we know nothing. Danny even takes the hint that she's the blood of the dragon and should focus on that. But like her conversation with Asande, she's conflicted over the nature of her blood. She reflects on Barry's stories of Ares. She's thinking of Isaiah again. The struggle continues. We still need to wait for the end of the book for any kind of resolution. Danny looks around her pyramid, hoping to find a mysterious quaif again, but has no luck, much to our disappointment. So once she's back inside and on normal duties, she reflects on Quaife's warnings as prophecies, mainly the one about betrayal. She's still obsessed on that one aspect. 
which is understandable. Quave's effect is instantaneous as she begins to look at Reznak and wonder if she can protect against him or whether prophecy is set in stone. She has no answers but I think or hope that Danny's weakness here comes in treating Quave's words as prophecy. Her first visit fits that mould very well but this time round what she said can be seen more as simple warnings. Hopefully Danny does click at some point. It's good to be suspicious but it sure is stressful and it's going to end up hamstringing her in the future. From there we return to court as we did in Danny 1. And like before, much of it is all tedium and details and going around and round with nothing useful getting done. Again, I'll say, Danny needs a better counsel to pick up the slack a bit, although she does do a good job of thinking up ways to placate both parties that she has to here. His tar comes again to argue for his fighting pits reopening. We've got to just keep up a steady trickle of him in this request so that we're used to the hammering that will persuade Danny in the end. This time he comes with a slightly different look, perhaps to endear himself to Daenerys just a little bit more. And he also brings some fighters to speak for themselves, so we get a bit of setup for later on, as some of these people will enter the spotlight a bit. Kraz will have his famous duel with Sir Barry after Danny is gone. Barcina Blackhair will be killed by a boar moments before Drogo's return in the pit, whereas the rest will eventually become part of Marine's ruling council, quote unquote, thanks to their friendship with King Hisdar. So it's an interesting little glimpse forward into the plot. For now, each of them gives their reasons for wanting to fight, and it mainly comes down to ego and glory. That's not to call them vain. For almost their entire life, this has been presented to them as the only way to possibly matter in the world, so it's very hard to get rid of that thinking whether someone comes along and frees you or not. These persuasions have an effect on Danny. These people genuinely want this, and they fought for her in taking the city, so she feels like she owes them something. Besides, she's supposed to support freedom, and they freely choose for the pits to open, so it's a difficult line to judge. At least she realises that Hisdar is a cunning man. Yes, that's one word for him. For now, she incites a delay tactic and says she'll think about it, but we can already see this heading towards the concession pile. Luckily, the next part of the chapter is Danny asking for some Barry story time about when he escaped King's Landing, which I will listen to a hundred times before listening to Hisdar Zolarak again. And just a reminder, Barry got Danny a cushion for her hours in court, despite the folks she'd been joking about it previously. We do have to love this guy, he is a sweet old man. So Barry steps into the light a bit here to ready us for his POV debut much, much later on. We even have the hint of some themes we'll deal with in those POV chapters, like his guilt over taking Robert's pardon. Again, Danny asks for his escape story, and at first he doesn't seem keen, but then falls into it pretty easy once he gets going. Some of this we know from Game of Thrones, some from when he first came to Daenerys, but we'll get much more detail here than ever before. And it is a great story. It's one of my favourites. Barry throwing his sword at Joffrey's feet and walking away from him and Cersei with head held high will forever be one of the best moments in the series. But then we get these added details of wanting to protect his cousins and by not going home. How he pulled one over on Janice Slint, whom only confronted Barristan because he believed him unarmed. Yep, that fits in well with him, doesn't it? And that's pretty good timing considering we just saw Slint getting his final comeuppance. But then we also have him beating multiple foes at once, again without his sword, and then doubling back and using their own bias against them in terms of his age by hiding in plain sight. It's amazing stuff that really does get his fist bumping. I love Barry's stories, he is awesome. But then it all takes another solemn note, like the rest of this chapter, when he mentions that he was there for Ned's death. Obviously, there are a few scenes in the entire series that are so key. This is really kind of on the podium here. We saw the whole thing through Aya's eyes, never knowing that there was another major character and future POV in the crowd as well. It's quite the revelation, and it reminds us of Barry and Ned getting on way back when in the day. It's fitting that Ned's death was the absolute final straw in Barry's faith in what the Iron Throne had become and sent him towards Daenerys. Well, for Zerus really, but you get it. 
Unfortunately, Danny's not too happy to be hearing of Eddard Stark and trots out some of the lessons that Viserys taught her that she's never really had challenge, to be fair. But challenge, Barry does, as he gives Ned his due over those council meetings where we met this back in Game of Thrones. But again, unfortunately, I don't think Danny really absorbs the information that Ned Stark argued against her being killed. Not wanting to hear certain things about certain people because she's got these beliefs set in stone might follow her to Westeros where her long-perceived notions might be challenged. Last week, we discussed the possibility of what happens when she crosses paths with Jamie, for example. So this whole thing could definitely fall into this category of selective hearing. Some things she just takes as fact and she does not want them to be challenged. Instead, she tiles the Starks and Lannisters with the same brush. They are all enemies to her. Such an assertion seems insane to us as readers, because we know about the war and everything that's happened between these two families and the many, many things that's happened. But obviously, none of that is made obvious to Daenerys. Even Barry would know little of the truth now. He left before that really started kicking off. But again, these are nuances she will need to learn if she's to have any effect once she gets to Westeros, and if we as readers don't want to be emotionally divided when she maybe just come up against some Starks. That's how Tyrion can really be of use to her, for discerning how things actually are, even if he does come with his own bias, of course. Marwyn, for example, will also be very useful in that regard. It's going to be difficult still to argue Daenerys off this opinion and others, but it will need to be done. And is it slightly hypocritical for her to be calling out Stark or Lannister or Baratheon? Now she's seen the difficulties of rule firsthand and understands that things aren't always as they seem. She's given out some horrible orders of her own, and she feels they were justified. Of course, it takes an insane amount of maturity and self-reflection, as well as an even temperament, to be able to look at things so clearly and put your own family's place where it actually should be instead of where you'd like it to be. Besides, at least Danny is giving the orders herself and feeling the weight of them. Robert only gets a pass from terrible orders because he would hand over the responsibility and go drinking instead. Danny is owning what Robert never bothered with. It's while thinking on guilt that Danny stops the conversation dead. Something has overtaken all of her issues in her mind as she remembers Hosea and says, I have to see the pit, in a voice as small as a child's whisper. Take me down, sir, if you would. Remember, first-timers have no idea what's coming here and they are very, very interested to see just what she means. What is hidden beneath the pyramid? While Barry obeys, she takes her down, down and down further. Down narrow stairs past Unsullied. You seem like they're made of stone. No. Just as a little insertion here, where else has lots of narrow steps and statues? The crypts of Winterfell, no? And what do some people believe resides down beneath the crypts of Winterfell? Hmm, just food for thought, keep that in mind. Once again, it feels like we are in a Legend of Zelda game, which we all should be because they are awesome, when we end up passing a dozen rooms before arriving in front of a set of gigantic doors. Danny has obviously opened a chest and got that cool discovery noise and found a small key, and she uses it now. And as soon as it opens, what do we get from the other side? Fire, heat, and two dragons. Yes, this isn't Death Mountain, this isn't Dodongo's Lair from Ocarina of Time. This one's got two dragons, not one. And here we come to the big reveal of the chapter. Something we would have always considered completely unimaginable. Daenerys has locked two of her dragons away after learning that Drogon killed a child. This blows our mind. We know how much Denny cares for the three of them, how much they care for her, how strong that connection is. They are her children. She loves them and the feeling comes back from them. So to see this, well, it honestly breaks our hearts. We love the dragons, we always have. And now they are locked up down in here in this horrible pit, this horrible place, when these two didn't even actually do the crime. It frames the entire chapter in a new light. The struggles of guilt, which is now two-way guilt for not only Hosea, but also locking up her own dragons. The not knowing what to do, the not being confident in her own power. Again, Quaife's words even make a bit more sense if you buy into what I was claiming about her intentions. You've just locked up two-thirds of what makes you, you. 
of what this is all about and maybe what we need to save the world. What are you doing here? Come on. So this internal struggle we've spoken about has now taken a big step into also being external. She's made concrete steps to turn away from her Targaryenness and the power that she wields because it has hurt people and killed people and children most importantly. That is what matters to her the most. Hence this action. And this actually has an effect right now. This is major both in the present and the future. It's admirable that she wants to protect the people from her own power, of course it is, but probably because she needs the dragon so much it will hurt her much later on. I doubt she will ever have the connection with these two, with Viserion and Rhaegal, that she once did or does in the future with Drogon. Now does that play a part in the ability of someone else to come along and control one, whether willingly or unwillingly? Maybe a Jon, maybe a Euron? Don't know. And physically, they are also unlikely to be as domineering as Drogon either, because theoretically they don't have as much space to grow. Here's a quote to get across Danny's inner anguish. What sort of mother lets her children rot in darkness? If I look back, I am doomed, Danny told herself. But how could she not look back? I should have seen it coming. Was I so blind? Or did I close my eyes willfully, so I would not have to see the price of power? We know this decision is going to consume her. The guilt is impossible to deny. But then won't the same happen if she lets them out and can't control them and more children are eaten? Every way seems to be laced with misery. There's no good direction. But let's say this for her. She at least is considering this price of power, as she calls it. How many hundreds of thousands of characters do we know that would grab a dragon, hop on, and pass everything else off as collateral damage and maybe a bit of a shame? Daenerys, at her age especially, has the wisdom to consider consequences even at her own personal cost. Now, how many people can really say they would do the same? She is a special, she's one in a million, maybe two in a million if we uh, put John in there as well. Tension is also set by this idea that the dragons might even harm Danny now, Barry's word. They might be pissed about this imprisonment. Yeah, makes sense. So now, will we see these dragons as enemies? Will they go completely wild when they do finally get out? And she herself worries about them getting too big or escaping or turning on one another or maybe just wasting away until their fire goes out. Oh, that's an awful image. I don't like that one. So already, we're setting the seeds for that eventual getting loose thanks to Quentin's intervention. Danny also thinks on the propaganda of power, the stories that she and generations upon generations of Targaryen children have been told about the glory of dragons, the great deeds and the victories they won. And they were all just memories, just stories. But then Danny made them real and made stories of her own. And they were glorious and wonderful and hers. And then she compares all of that grandeur to the life of a little girl named Tazea and decides that one is worth more than the other. Try as she might, she can't convince herself that the father was lying or mistaken. Those would be much better answers than the truth. She thinks of having to pay the man off and make him lie, and something about that sickens her as well, because she'll always know the truth. There's no paying her soul off. Yes, her advisors are busy thinking this is bad PR, that the new queen's pets eat children, but Danny spares no thought about that. It's the little girl who died because of her and her power that holds her attention. Still, that doesn't stop her reminiscing about her own true children, how they were before when they seemed gentler beasts, she has the same type of memory about them eating and sleeping that any pet owner does, and how that has now transformed into her having to trick Viserion while he slept. It's the ultimate guilt of betrayal against her own blood. And they managed to get Rhaegal as well, but at an equally distressing cost. He had to be bundled in a net and dragged down here. Imagine how painful that was for Danny to witness. And then there's the third, the one who actually did the crime, and he wasn't imprisoned at all, although not for lack of trying. Four more men died just in the attempt to capture Drogon, so she has guilt across these people, people whose names she doesn't even know. Perhaps it's because he clicked what was happening, perhaps because he's naturally stretching his proverbial wings. Either way, Drogon is gone. Mother of dragons, Danny thought. Mother of monsters. What have I unleashed upon the world? A queen I am, but my throne is made of burned bones and it rests on quicksand. Without dragons, how could she hope to hold Marine? Much less win back Westeros. I am the blood of the dragon, she thought. 
This is the conundrum. This is the problem. To get what she wants in Westeros, she needs dragons. To have what she loves in her dragons, she needs them free. But to have them free means death and the opposite of her larger mission to save people. She can't win Westeros. She can't win Marine. She can't win with them free. She can't win. She can't win. She can't win. And then she thinks this. If they are monsters, so am I. We say this of the Starks often enough, but the same may well be true of Daenerys. She might have to go down a dark road to get what she wants or to save the world. Either way, we're pretty sure she needs the dragons for both. So does that mean a bunch of children and other innocents just have to be sacrificed? Is that acceptable? Can she ever allow that or will it just tear her soul apart? Either way, at the moment, Danny feels herself as a negative for the world, which is just so unfair and frustrating for us as the reader, considering all she's already done and will hopefully continue to do. It wounds us so much to see her in this situation. And what we're hoping is that all that's missing is control and her final turning back to her Targaryen side, as hinted with Drogon at the end, can be improved upon and then applied to the other two. Maybe she just gets it later on and then everything's fine and she can tell them, hey, don't eat any more children. Maybe the four of them will be good together again. Maybe she can stop all that. Presumably, the dragons of King's Landing that lived there for hundreds of years and also on Dragonstone had some restraint when just eating whenever they liked. So maybe Danny can figure that missing link. And if so, then what are the limits there? Perhaps only the ones she has just imposed on herself. Yes, Quave's advice seems better than ever. Basically, believe in yourself a bit, Danny. So we know how valuable these treasures that she's just locked up are to Daenerys going forward. We don't want any time between them to be wasted. We know how much she loves them and they her. And what makes it worse is we actually had to see them having a nice time together and Danny won. Just George rubbing salt on the wound there. So now she turns her back on them, they're closed up, they're apart. It really seems like she's basically lowered her defences going forward. And the Danny slope truly begins this real dark, deep slope into Hobble Marine without her besties. It's super, super similar to John Freed's ending tone. Like I said at the beginning, just recall that heavy emotion at the end of last week when he had to say goodbye to Pip and Gren and all the others, Sam and Eamon as well. The chapter sequencing is amazing. He gave up his friends, she her children, both hate their current position and we look forward to both of them busting out and getting back on the track. What a chapter. It is amazing. I really like that one. And unfortunately, if you thought that was a solemn chapter and a bit of a gloomy one, well, you might want to turn off now because it's nothing compared to what we've got next. As we head back over to Westeros for, unfortunately, Reek slash Theon 1. Yes, we might think that the beginning and end of that dying chapter is a bit of a downturn and it's got some doom and gloom, but let me tell you, it's a prance in the fairy field compared to what's coming next. I had to bust out the thesaurus just for Danny too, so I didn't have to overuse words like solemn or somber. And guess what? I've already run out for Reek slash Fion 1. And yeah, firstly, let me apologise if you weren't aware who Reek is, but uh, I think you probably do. Yes, we've come to this, what is clearly one of the most important arcs of the book. A POV that really makes dance dance. It will be incredibly important to the plot. It opens up a before of further storylines and questions for the future. And tonally, I don't think anything gets across the misery slash dark attitude of a dance of dragons like the arc of Theon Greyjoy. Yes, here we are. Once upon a time, I got to talk about things like Catelyn Stark and her wonderful arc and how much I loved her. But no, now I'm here, stuck down in a dungeon, talking about Reek. Oh, how the times have changed. Honestly, what are we supposed to say about this guy, about this arc? It is incredible. Its entire inclusion is completely out of left field. No one was expecting it. Definitely no one was expecting it to look like this. And the thematic and emotional work that George gets in about identity, redemption, family, forgiveness, and self-worth is, again, incredible. There's no other word for it. Dance Fion is, in my opinion, far and away, 
the toughest read of the entire series. It's just not fun. He is this horrible sludge of pain, of being afraid, of absolute misery on every path. There is no light here in this arc. Hope is nearly all extinguished, and yet it's still fantastic. This is truly some of George's best work. I know this is nothing new I'm saying, and many, many wonderful writers and podcasters have done stuff on this before, but it's very true. The emotions involved, the journey of this twisted, broken soul, and his resolving of at least some of his issues of the past, it's just unmatched. It really is. It is very hard to do it justice, and I admit straight up, I'll definitely fail on that mark. You can tell right now. There's nothing you can say to really, really get across how momentous and amazing this is. Caps off to George. As amazing as it might be to see Fionn slowly regain some sense of self, to realise what the Starks, Ned especially, meant to him, to actually start on a path of redemption and look at his past crimes properly, it's still a simply horrible read. All through this Riri project, we've spoken about George showing us someone to hate and then pulling the carpet out, being super mean to them and have us wondering about our own desires for comeuppance. He loves putting that conflict into our own hearts. And every single time that's come up, we've said that Fionn is the ultimate example. For rereaders, this arc has hung over the entire project. It waits there, standing out, almost beaming darkly. Nothing matches it. It weighs over the whole reread project. And in that respect, George hits a mark no one could have even guessed at. He set himself a challenge to create a truly contemptible character and then see if he could be so horrible to him as to actually inspire some sympathy. And he does it, is the incredible thing. He hits that mark. This is the character who betrayed Rob. He captured Winterfell. His actions got his citizens killed and the castle itself burned. He destroyed our original family. He turfed out Bran and Rickon and the others. And those actions eventually led to the death of Rob and Catelyn as well. What greater crime could there be? He literally destroyed the good guys. He did as much, if not more damage, than House Lannister of all people. Add on top of that his general nature, his attitude and his actions against women and being a cocky little shit even in the beginning. And we have all hated Fionn Greyjoy almost as much as anyone in the series. Sure, we already saw some reasons of why he was like that. His dad was mean, etc, etc, but it didn't stop the hatred. It seems so long ago now, but that clash arc was truly something else. It broke the mould in giving us a POV of someone we were supposed to hate. It surprised us all with this fall of Winterfell, and it was truly just the out-and-out picture of a villain. Again, I say, we hated Fionn Greyjoy, and with good reason. We hated him almost as much as a Joffrey for what he did. And yet, amazingly, somehow, Dance gets us to maybe not forgive him for those actions, but at least feel bad for him and at least want something a little bit better for him. For the man who brought down the Starks and laughed while he did it. We want something better for that guy. It is truly an incredible feat by George. It really is. And how is it achieved? Through absolute peak cruelty. We think we've seen some rough stuff through these books, and we have, but pretty much nothing compares to what has been done to Fionn. The torture or the effects of torture that have been done to him physically, emotionally, mentally, are just something else. They make you feel sick, and if they don't, I would take a look in the mirror personally. The phrase, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, is actually applicable. We actually wouldn't wish this on Fionn, our former enemy. It is an absolute breaking of a person, a complete stripping down until there is basically no humanity left. Is there anything worse that can be done to someone, making them feel less than worthless, less than human? It's awful. And again, I cannot do it justice. It makes for damn uncomfortable reading, but it is damn effective as well. While we're on the note of uncomfortable reading, this whole arc in general is full of it. Theon exists in a joyless world. Most of that resolves around someone who, because we're in Theon's eyes, is vaulted up into the upper stratosphere of antagonists in Ramsay Bolton. 
and as we've said before, Ramsey is basically a grown-up Joffrey with even less supervision, and I believe George added him in to replace Joffrey as that type of character. His actions and malice, and let's, let's be frank, insanity, are worse than we've ever seen. You can make a genuine case he's worse than the Bloody Mummers or even the Ramir Sixkins, as if his father wasn't freaky and scary enough. But this feeling pervades throughout, whether it's hearing about Ramsay's actions, witnessing the ugly deaths of the Ironborn at Mokalin, being surrounded by the true effects of a hard winter at Winterfell, or, worst of all, the return of Jane Paul. Yes, here we are. You might want to excuse me, you might want to turn the volume down, because you will recall that my feelings about Jane Paul can get fairly intense. And that was back at the, well, let's call it the kinder end of her story, quote-unquote. And unfortunately, we've reached the other end. We've reached the true horror. Now we reach what I unashamedly call the worst part of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I don't mean worse in quality. No, of course I don't. I mean worse as in this hurts our very souls. And I'll be straight up. I'll admit it to you guys. I don't know what I'm going to do when we get to those bits. I don't know if I can quote certain lines to you. I really don't have the strength. Even the idea of having to talk about her whimpering plea to Theon is emotion at its very highest. It is an icicle through the heart. Cruelty is not good enough a word. The thesaurus does not help me here. And I'm going to implore you, at the beginning, right now, that while we might fairly curse the names of Ramsay Bolton and Bruce Bolton and a bunch of other enabling laws, we must never, ever forget to truly curse the name Peter fucking Baelish. You think he's not present in this book? Ha 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 ha. No, 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 sweet summer child. This is the legacy of who he is as a person, and it's never burned so fierce and rotting as it does in dance. Hmm. Now, like I say, that's all an inadequate roundup of the kind of emotion and theme that we're going to see in this arc. And that's without looking at how things like physical disability are displayed within this book. The old gods and their type of justice really coming to the forefront. This kind of darker, colder history of the Starks, both recent and ancient. And again, that hope for some kind of redemption in the face of terrible crimes. For this is a POV that truly focuses on the internal. It is Theon not just realising what he's done, but appreciating what he destroyed, and the impossible, unpayable price of it all. So that's a very brief overview of all that, which I wish I had more time for. But what are the actual plot points of the Dark? Yeah, we haven't even got to that yet. Well, this is the grand reopening of the Northern plot. Something that, for all intents and purposes, ended back with Theon Greyjoy, back in Clash of Kings. We still had Rob and Catelyn fighting for the cause down in the Riverlands, but in terms of being present and larger things happening in the actual north, we've now been away for two books. And that has always been incredible to me that Winterfell, especially the, the rock of the series, the original location, is not there for half of it. This is something I had to talk about in the Council's book and it, it just really blows my mind. Because let's consider how important this northern plot is. It was the basis of the entire story at one point. We've always felt or known that eventually we must return that the series arc as a whole will come in a circle and refocus on that area, and Theon Greyjoy has turned out to be the gateway. Really, this is the opening of the final act. The slow realignment to the north that we left at the beginning. The gradual return of the Starks, hopefully. The upward movement of key players and armies until, assumedly, we have our final war of humanity versus the others. That all begins here, and it all begins with Theon. It is very, very fitting considering his role in originally closing that door. So while these seven chapters are going to be an incredible scope of the most miserable of human experiences, it is also going to be the story of how Bruce Bolton re-enters the narrative, which dredges up plenty of Red Wedding memories with him, how the politics of the North are far, far more diverse than we were able to discern through Bran's POV, and the various plotting and betrayals within. We'll see the ugly conclusion to the Northern invasion of Balon Greyjoy. We'll have an entire contingent of Freys enter the picture, 
we have the grand return of Winterfell. And I don't think I need to tell you the symbolic importance of that or the fact that it is a Bolton poisoning and usurping the honourable seat of our beloved Starks. We have the preparation for the war for the North itself against Stannis, the fake Aya storyline like I mentioned, and then perhaps a dozen smaller storylines running off into the future, like the tension between Roose and Ramsay, like the rotting of Roose's intimidation-based alliance, like Wyman Manderley and his pies, the ghost of Vin Winterfell, everything with Mance and his spearwives, the pink letter in general, and of course, we know this upcoming battle of ice is one-off, if not the most discussed subject when predicting or thinking about the winds of winter. How Stannis will use his nightline attack, what will happen to the phrase, how they will likely turn on each other within Winterfell. This is something far more than major, this is a critical turning point in the entire series. This is the war for the North, and Theon, along with Asher, is going to deliver it right to our doorstep, right to our eyeballs. Yes, this is an important POV if I ever saw one. Complete with hard-hitting emotion and some of the best atmospheric writing we'll see when we finally reach the gothic feeling of Winterfell in winter. And like I say, that is something I had to focus on quite a lot for the castles. But let's not forget, this whole POV is an ace that George pulls from up his sleeve. No one could have known or predicted that Fionn would be returning to us. It's such a surprise that George even manages to keep it secret for at least a little bit of the first chapter. Where we were amazed to see Davos re-enter the story last week, Realising that Theon Greyjoy of all people has been returned to us, and in this state, is mind-boggling, and immediately has us rethinking our previous takes on the character and what we wanted for him. That's the beauty of this structure. Introduce the horribleness of what this person has been through before revealing it as Theon. George absolutely knows how to get us thinking and confused and create that conflict in our hearts again. I guess that's a good hint we should finally start talking about this chapter, as easily as we could go on about the arc in general. Yes, this is an even longer intro than Quentin got. Wow. Theon 1 slash Reek is the third shortest chapter in the book and the shortest in the first half. Probably because even George can't put over these images he's making in this chapter and wanted to get it over and done with. As mentioned on previous episodes, Theon is the gold medal winner in terms of POV chapter breaks with 127 chapters since we last saw him. Unless George does gift us, and I would love it if he did, a Lady Stoneheart chapter or an epilogue, Theon is not getting knocked off that top spot. That all plays into George being mysterious of the name and location because again, who could have honestly predicted we would be drudging this person up again? And a drudge it is, as we have shown that this thing, that there used to be a human, how broken he is, how his world has been shattered before we also learn about the horrors around him, and then we are finally properly introduced to a major antagonist of the book, before having some quick setup for the coming northern plots. Yes, I would advise you to hold on to your hats, everybody, because here we go. I suppose, when you want to set a certain vibe for a POV slash chapter, there are a few ways more effective and having someone having to bite into a live rat for sustenance. That sends a pretty clear message that whoever this reek is, and plenty of first-timers remember might genuinely be thinking it was the reek that Fionn knew, that whole mess was very confusing, he's in a pretty bad way. You have to be, either that or seriously disturbed, to try and eat a rat to death. Images, as they go, are much more disgusting than that, and George really does take the opportunity to hammer the point home by being quite explicit in his description of this eating. That sick feeling we have already here on the first paragraph, that's pretty much just going to remain for the full seven Fionn chapters. In that opening paragraph, we can also see what a relief catching this rat is. It's a hard-won prize. It's something that Reek needed desperately. He's almost happy that he's been able to do this because supposedly the alternative is starvation. So already we can see how Ramsay has just lowered and lowered Reek slash Fionn's expectations of life to the point where eating a live rat is something to aspire to. As we might have guessed, this guy is in a dungeon. Not many other places you're going to have to eat rats, but then we also get more key info. Firstly, that Reek lives a life of terror. 
a terror so bad that even this blessed relief of eating is no longer important. And again, George goes all out with the uh, physical description there. The rat is a prize and someone seems to be coming and they might take it away. But much worse than that, the centre of the horror is Lord Ramsay. So that's a pretty big clue of where we are and who we're dealing with. Even if we've forgotten the name Reek, we haven't forgotten Ramsay. And we immediately figure we are somewhere in the north, likely in the Dreadfort. Hard as it is, we must remember that for the first timer, Ramsay hadn't been given that much of a focus up to this point. We heard rumours of him in Clash, and unknowingly saw a bit more, but Dance will be his time to shine. It was Roos who held our attention through Clash and Storm, so this chapter is going to be a very steep learning curve of discovering how those rumours don't do justice to the man. And for many, perhaps this is enough of a hint to discover that Reek is actually Fionn, and they can see through the naming ruse and figure who else would George give a POV. For now, we get some extra details on how bad things are for Reek. Three days without food, left in utter darkness like Ned so long ago, or Alistair Florent when Davos was released. It's always a terrible fate. And for good measure, we get a reminder of what Ramsay is like when the Lady Hornwood story comes up of her having to eat her own fingers. Oh yes, that's the guy we're dealing with, I remember. The tension immediately rises as Reek decides to eat his prize as quickly as possible as someone comes closer and closer. With every step he becomes more concerned, more afraid. He's begging for them to pass him by, to leave him in the darkness with this rat, which obviously begs the question, what happens outside the dungeon to make you want to stay in such a place? He's honestly begging, he's almost beside himself, and the picture of what a pitiful little creature this is, is already pretty clear. And just for some extra atmosphere, we get this. The women always scream the loudest. Yes, it's a pretty effective first page in terms of atmosphere building. Despite his begging, Reek's gobblers do come, and that terrible image we already had becomes even worse as he starts moaning and pushing himself into the wall to get away. Whoever Reek truly is, is irrelevant in this moment. We are shown very clearly the mental anguish this person has been put through, he's been reduced to. He's absolutely terrified and completely beside himself. He hates light, he hates people. He's so distressed he's in physical pain. It's awful to watch what is about to come through that door. As it turns out, it's just two boys. Clearly, we're not meant to remember their identity just yet, but Reek isn't a fan of them anyway. As the two boys look upon him, it shores up that image of some pathetic, stinking creature, which Reek adds onto with his description of how the rats are slowly trying to eat him. <sighs> yeah, what starts this chapter, goddamn. Talk to me. Tell me your name. My name. A scream caught in his throat. So begins perhaps the key theme of this arc, self-identity. It's always a big storyline for Theon, even back in Clash when he refused to admit his confusion over being Greyjoy or Stark, and now he's so reduced that he has to argue over his first name instead. That is how George decided to manifest this self-identity issue, via names and how they denote worth. He does it via reek and the rhyming of certain words pertaining to certain issues, and he plays copycat himself by having the first few chapters titled Reek before switching into title mode rather than names when Theon starts discovering a bit more of himself and moves into a new role. Forevermore, the name Reek, even more than the rhyming thing, is used as the symbol of control from Ramsay. In a way, it is a title too. It shows that you are nothing. You have been broken from whatever you were before. That has been taken from you, and now you are on the lowest possible rung. You rhyme with leak, because you aren't worth any more than a leak. To hammer the point home, you must always remember this is your name, your title. You must always remember you are worth less than everyone else now. George cleverly combines the downgrade of social status and human worth with physical degradation as well, as Reek not only suffers through physical pain and these needles in his jaw and elsewhere, but what has already been done to him, his broken fingers and broken teeth, at least one thing has been removed entirely. This is a man who has been shattered in all aspects. Reek. Reek. My name is Reek. He had not been born with that name. In another life, he had been someone else. But here and now, his name was Reek. He remembered. While this again might be another hint of true identity, or at least the fact that Reek has some secrets, the larger message is that Reek is something he has to remember. 
He almost has to give himself the name over and over. It has to be something he activates. This is a critical part of his imprisonment and control by Ramsay, making him an active participant, making it something to aspire to. He has to want to be weak because the alternative is just too damn painful. The focus returns to the boys, and instead of teasing it, George just lays it straight out. This is big and little Walder Frey, the wards of Catelyn Stark, whom we last saw being bullies and sneaks towards Bran and definitely towards Hodor. As we spoke about a lot of the time, and again with certain older members of House Frey that mirror their duality, they represent the two halves of being a Frey. You're either brutish and cruel and full of dumb strength, or you're scheming and conniving and very, very cunning. As a reminder, it is Little Walder who's big and Big Walder who's small, and these two will certainly be stepping back into the main plot a little later in the book. Reek gives another little hint of his identity by the fact that he remembers them, because we know they were once his squires instead of Ramsay's, while also letting the two of them terrify him by announcing it's Ramsay who is asking to see him. The reaction of pure dread serves up to this great build-up that George is creating. Few villains in this series actually receive such. Before we even meet Ramsay, or re-meet Ramsay, we are having his handiwork completely shoved in our faces. The dread is so bad, Reek considers trying to escape. They are just two boys of eight, we are reminded, which always seems so very odd. Almost all the children in this series seem to act older than we would normally associate with their age, but the two Walders are definitely two of the larger culprits, especially Big Walder, considering what he'll likely get up to later. Aside from the games that they chose to play in Clash, if you were to read them without being informed of their age, you would definitely figure them teenagers at the very least. The idea of running brings up a memory in Reek's mind, a lesson, you could call it. It was the day he learned exactly what he was dealing with in terms of Ramsay Snow. And fair warning, this is definitely one of the harder parts of the chapter to read, which is saying something. This is the tale of Kyra. Remember Kyra from the days of old at Winterfell? Remember us telling you at the time to remember Kyra because of the awful fate she receives in Tants? Well, yep, we're here. This is it. Yes, Reek remembers being led to think that he and Kyra were actually escaping from the Dreadfort, which we can kind of confirm we're at now thanks to the weeping water being mentioned, and then finding out a horrific truth. Kyra had set Reek free, apparently being made to disarm the guards with some kind of sexual act, and then begged Reek to take her back to Winterfell. So though we're still short of official confirmation, we can basically figure out this is Fionn now. Kyra calls him a lord and asks to take him back to Winterfell. Who else is there who would have been a lord at Winterfell? The only conceivable possibilities are Rickon, who's obviously too young, or technically Benjen. So I'm thinking, we all know this is Fionn now. So escape they did, and recall, Kyra didn't have any reason to want to escape with Fionn. He raped her back at Winterfell. So either she was told by Ramsay this was to be a game that she had to play a part in, or she was led to believe it was a genuine escape and the Dreadfort was far worse than anything Fionn could represent. Escape turned into a hunt, as we are now treated to the true psychoticness of Ramsay. Mere torture and cruelty isn't enough, at least not in physical form. In many ways, he exceeds Joffrey here. Ramsay is literally playing a game with these people. He warps their hopes and desires and twists it into something else to fear. As we see here in the present day, it's amazingly effective and makes your victims double-guess everything or mistrust each other. Escape and flight are now completely purged from Reek's mind because of what happened to Kyra once they were caught. And I think you know to what I refer. It pushes him back towards wanting to serve, wanting to be Reek, as well as lowering the sense of self. You are on the same tier as prey. You are beneath the rest of us, the hunters. The best you could hope to be is a loyal lapdog. Ramsay delights in utterly warping his victims, their entire interaction with the world, and he's very good at it. Case in point, here comes the quote. Reek. My name is Reek. It rhymes with bleak. He had to remember that. Serve and obey, and remember who you are, and no more harm will come to you. He promised. His lordship promised. We've already seen how effective these techniques are. They get Reek on side. It makes him believe there's an agreement in place. If I do this, he won't do that. There is a way to keep the pain away. It's something that Reek understandably latches onto. 
As he tells us, it's actually only an extra layer of not being able to escape because he's so mistreated he can't do anything for himself anyway. And just to make us feel smart about our own analogy, George makes the same one when he compares Reek to a docile dog. And yet, if I had a tail, the bastard would have cut it off. The fort came unbidden, a vile fort, and dangerous. So we see, for all of Ramsay's success in the destruction of Fionn's soul, there is something of the original human left in there. There is still some hatred, some complaining part of him who can recognise Ramsay as an enemy. The effect is so strong that Reek immediately tries to quash it and focus back on his new given name because again, he wants to be part of that agreement. At the same time, we get some useful notes on who Ramsay is as a person, the update that he's been made of Bolton, and how his bastardry bothers him. We also get full confirmation that we're in the Dread Fort, and George adds to the atmosphere by painting it as a proper bad guy's castle. I particularly like him referring to the Merlons as a line of little black teeth. Everything about this place is predatory. It is while finally being exposed to the world, and remember he might have been down in the darkness for six months or more, my god, that that little spark of Theon emerges again as he proclaims he can keep his wits no matter what. That might be slightly hopeful since apparently a lot of his wits have been taken from him, but it's something to hold on to and something that will grow and grow through the book. He would doubt his method of judging his sanity by the fact that boys are still boys when he realises how different he himself looks, which is a big deal for anyone again, but definitely someone as narcissistic as the once always smiling Theon. If Danny's chapter made us feel like we were exploring a temple, Nariks seems to be taking us to a boss battle as we enter the Great Hall, a ceiling lost to shadows, torches grasped by skeletal human hands. Alright, that's quite the aesthetic choice, isn't it? I think it's clear what you're trying to project through, so just don't go overboard, shall we? As Reek and the Walders progress up the hall, we see some of the minor characters who will be present in Fionn's later chapters. Ramsay's bastard boys, mainly. Some of them will get what's coming to them in this book, but some won't. And Reek notices that there are others there. There are strangers. This isn't just your normal day. This is a formal event. This is important. We see the truth of that when we finally clap eyes on Ramsay Snow, and see he has two people of note beside him. But first, let's look at Ramsay, all in black and pink to celebrate his becoming an official Bolton and the general awe it presents. He wears a garnet shaped as a blood drop just in case you're unsure what he's all about. Alright, we get it. And he's ugly as well. George takes care to focus on that as if we're dealing with some ill-made demon trying to look like a human. He doubles on this Boltonness by sitting in his father's seat and using his father's cup. Yes, we can see what makes him tick. Many have previously pointed out that Ramsay could be what John might have become in an alternative universe. But the biggest similarity to his father is the eyes. Those we made a big deal of when we used to be around Bruce all the time. Colourless, like two chips of dirty ice. Lifeless, basically. There is no humanity behind them. Ramsay takes great pleasure in introducing his favourite toy to his guests here, though he originally tries to paint him as the original Reek that was his boyhood friend, which is strange considering the purpose of bringing him out and the fact he slips a hint about the Ironborn straight away. The two still unnamed lords recognise him anyway, even as we learn that the hair is now white as well, and we get our final official confirmation. The crookback lord looked again and gave a sudden snort. Him? Can it be? Stark's ward? Smiling? Always smiling? He smiles less often now. Lord Ramsay confessed. I may have broken some of his pretty white teeth. Ramsay continues the boasting of skinning and starving as Fionn quickly refocuses on the strength of his new name and that agreement with Ramsay. We see that he has become a complete slave to this man, eager to please in any way, as well as utterly terrified of the games, as we can see when Ramsay toys with him about the crime of eating a Bruce Bolton rat. George doesn't think we've had enough though, so we get this extended description of how Ramsay prolongs pain and suffering via flaying, making people beg to have fingers removed because he enjoys the challenge. Again, it's just a sick game to him, making his victims participate in their own misery. And we see the full effect when Fionn blames himself 
for having lost so many fingers and toes. The two lords, who are never actually identified here in this chapter, but we know, are actually Arnolf, Karstark and Hofer Umber, just to set up that, again, political building in the north, have had enough of the display already and advocate for killing Fionn instead. So Ramsay reveals the point of all this. He is to get married to the daughter of Eddard Stark, Aya herself. So boom go the connections in our brain. It seems like an age since that Jamie Feast chapter where he waved Aya, quote unquote, off and we remember it isn't Aya coming at all, it's Jane Paul. And we've just spent a whole chapter exploring the monster she is riding towards. Is there anything possibly more chilling? For Theon, the information is a way to send him back to the person he was, the one who knew Rob and Sansa and Aya. He even secretly nursed the hopes of becoming one of them by marrying Sansa, as well as trepidation at the idea of being made to be part of all this and serve Ramsay. But for us, it's huge tension setting. We know that Ira is a fake. We know that Roose knows, but does Ramsay? How will that be acted to by him or maybe by other Northerners or Theon himself? What does it all mean for poor Jane? Nothing good, most likely. And more than that, it's shown that the North is going to become a major part of this book. We're finally going to see it unleashed, so to speak. So we can finally witness what's happening up here in the most important of kingdoms. So the promise is set. We don't yet know that Theon is going to be used to take Moat Kaelin, although some might have worked it out, only that it is going to be used. Theon has returned to us and is going to play a part in reigniting the North after it was he who ended it once before. And so closes the beginning of this horrible arc. And uh, well, I'd like to say it improves, but not by much. No, the tower images, the general atmosphere, they're going to be returning to us six more times, so look forward to that, I guess. And yeah, what else can you say about this chapter? Really, George achieves his mission, doesn't he? We are still probably reeling after the first time we've all read this, thinking, oh, well, we didn't want that to happen. Okay, we wanted comeuppance, we wanted vengeance, but this is something else. And there, again, is the conflict in our hearts and minds about what we want and vengeance and all these kind of things that George loves to make us think about, and he certainly does here and he will do so again like i say we go from one cold mean place to another as we stay in vaguely the same direction for this next chapter we might be shot of ramsay as we come into brand two but there's plenty of other evils to deal with and the general atmosphere is just as spooky as we finally complete the journey or the physical one at least of young brandon stark it can be difficult to put this into context or at least realize how momentous this chapter actually is i know all these chapters seem like that today, but I think this one might actually take the cherry. On a basic layer, it's the culmination of a journey that started back at the end of Clash of Kings when Bran left Winterfell. Depending on how you want to contextualise Aya or Danny's journeys, you can make the argument that this is the longest journey in the series for a POV. I would certainly subscribe to that, seeing as Bran has basically been out in the wild this whole time, at least Danny has been to Calf and asked for etc etc and Aya has been to Harrenhal and now she's in Bravos etc whereas Bran has pretty much I know he gets to Queen's Crown stuff but I mean come on he's pretty much just been out on his own with this small group against the elements this whole time and it's ending here today but on a much more important level this is if not the end then at least a culmination of so much of Bran's arc this is where he makes it he finds the three-eyed crow that journey is one that started way back when when Jamie pushed him out of a window or some will argue much much earlier this is confirmation, finally, that it's all real. There is some ancient source of eldritch magic at hand here. Bran really is going to be a part of something huge, something absolutely critical, something that very easily could be the entire point of the series. This is it. This is where he reaches that moment and we get to see it. And we can argue and theorise over and over about what that actually means, what the intent of the Three-Eyed Crow is, or what they're going to get up to specifically, whether Bran is going to become someone very, very dark in some ways, which I again believe, or whether he'll even have to turn against his master or something of that nature. 
Until recently, there might have been a solid argument that this physical journey Bran has just completed might have been his last theme and would have had to stay in this cave forever. Although recent comments from George and from people in the fandom as well have probably put that one to bed. What we probably can be sure of is that this new experience is going to be creepy and it's going to come at a cost. Caves full of bones and a man who is half a tree sends a certain message and we can assume that Bran is going to lose something of himself. Now I think we all agree it's probably not to the extent that the TV show portrayed it, but something. And for his friends, the risk is likely very much the same or possibly even worse. Again, the sheer weight of this ending of the chapter, of meeting a character so incredibly important in history, cannot be understated. This is political history, this is Targaryen history, this is ancient history, the very basis of the continent in the Children of the Forest, all laid out for us to find in this cave. If we ever thought we were in one of Old Man's stories before, and we have said that a few times, it is nothing compared to now. It turns out the black gate underneath the Night Fort wasn't Bran's gateway to a new life at all. This cave door is. As we said in this first chapter and in the prepper episode, Bran's build-up to this moment has been about leaving life behind. His old, personal life at Winterfell, that's already long gone. The life of the populated Seven Kingdoms, he lost that in Storm. Even the life of Autumn, as he's travelled further north than he had any right to get to. He shouldn't have been able to make it this far. Now he leaves the land of the living entirely, with the final steps being marred by death itself. Now Bran enters a sort of hell, or purgatory perhaps, where time means little and less. He is something else now, something separate from the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire. In many ways, it's similar to the Isle of Faces, which we always see as this kind of just separate bubble from everything going on in the centre of Westeros. This cave is very much the same. Even in the, you have the physical standpoint of, sure, you can't see what's going on around you and you're kind of hidden and safe, but there's this kind of metatextual as well, where if you can look through time and see all these memories, then you really are separate from everything else, aren't you? It doesn't mean the same thing. And for rereaders who know what this is going to lead to in terms of power and knowledge, well, it is a very exciting time indeed. Yes, this is the true story, the true war, the truth that Bran will soon discover. There are so many mysteries left to us, but we finally get one of the most important ever discovered as Bran takes a gigantic leap into destiny that was certainly not made easy for him. And George waits zero time before setting the atmosphere needed for this chapter. Right at the beginning here, we instantly have Raven screaming and the shiver running down Bran's spine, as if that isn't ripped out of Horror Feelings 101. Bran is immediately telling himself he needs to be brave, but it's already a losing battle. Even our dearest Summer is afraid at the beginning here, so now we know it's serious. And George doubles down on his old horror bedrocks, fur standing on edge, stretching shadows, hungry shadows that look like monsters, and then to top it all off, he keeps it classically simple to really drop that horror hammer. They are here, the ranger drew his longsword. As beginnings go, we'll find few so direct. There is danger, quick and instant. The atmosphere that's been building up as far back as the night fort has finally come home to roost. All those things we've been made to fear as bumps in the night have finally come true. This is it, this is what we've all been dreading, and the effect could not be more instantaneous on the reader. There's danger, danger everywhere. The group are standing in the middle of this empty, icy land, not knowing which direction their death might come from. Mira is whispering in the frigid air. Hodor is hodoring, and Bran warns that wolves are also afoot. But as the reader would have guessed, and Cold Hands confirms, wolves are not the antagonist of this chapter. But then something else is brought up. They have reached somewhere where they can get in. Although it's not said explicitly, the reader works out, we're here. We're at our destination. This miraculous journey is almost complete. And that in itself only raises the tension, because if any of us have even read a single story before, we'll know the final hurdle is always the hardest. George decides to go all out and add the time element as well. 
the sun is setting. Things will likely get worse once it's gone. And the alternative route that they're looking at is not an option. Although it certainly is handy for remembering later on that a backdoor does exist. Bran and Hodor simply can't make that though, and Jojen is failing anyway. It's implied that he needs to get in or he'll meet his own end. Mira even says, the way looks clear. So we have all the building blocks here. Atmosphere, time, tension, it looking like it's safe. Yeah, that pretty much tells us we know something bad is going to happen, and Cold Hands tends to agree. It feels cold, they say, and we've read enough of John and Sam chapters to know what that means. So the goal is presented. It's a thousand yards over clean, crisp snow, and then a passage between two weirwoods, because of course two weirwoods are used to mark this passage into the new, or is it old, world. And there's ravens flying in and out just to complete the image. Bran mentions in a moment that all of Coldhand's ravens have been abandoning them in recent days. Is that because they've been returning here to their true master, or because this is too deep into the land of death and danger? The last few remaining to them are encouraging Bran to continue, to come forward, so logically their source is coming from within this cave. It's the ultimate up there, it's the real goal, the Nirvana. It's not just the place that Bran has been struggling to reach for so long, but also safety from all this danger we've been presented with as we learn that the cave is warded. It's that bubble we spoke about against all we know of the lands above the wall. But then Coldhands points out that also means he cannot join them. So I guess we've finally got that confirmation and what the children pretty much did guess for themselves during Bran 1. Within his own mind, Bran has reservations. He notes the details of the steepness of this path they have to climb, the thickness of the trees, but outwardly he is still trying to be the little prince, the leader, the brave boy. It's the second time in as many pages that the word brave has been used for Bran, and what was it his father told him about the only time someone can be truly brave? Hmm. Even with cold hands claiming the danger might be white walkers, not just whites, Bran maintains his leadership qualities. Almost there, once we're in, everything will be solved and that is sorely needed as we're given a description of poor Jojen Reed. We focused on his deteriorating state in Bran 1, but things have become far worse. He looks like he's minutes from death. He's cold, he's weak, he's colourless. Mira, because she is the most awesome character ever, has not only been carrying him because he lacks the strength to walk, but tells the others to go on without them. She will stop and protect her brother, because of course she will, she's Mira Reed. You have to wonder if Jojen's failing is coming about just because of the brutal environment that they're in, or because he has some kind of clandestine and expiry date, that by the time his mission is fulfilled and his part played, the fates are done with him and will not bother with keeping him going anymore. Brave leader Bran won't accept such an outcome. Jojen just needs to eat, he says. They just need to get in that cave and everything will be fine. It's going to solve every problem they've ever had. The eating brings sad memories, as he recalls that their faithful elk buddy has finally given out after serving them so well. That's, that's pretty sad. And the fact, also, that necessity demanded having to eat his remains. Bran cried at the time, and I don't blame him. I would as well. What a good little elk he was. Goodbye, elky, we'll call him. As much as Bran might sound confident, Mira still denies him. Consider her following quote. He needs to eat, Mira agreed, smoothing her brother's brow. We all do, but there's no food here. Go. That sounds very much like she is accepting the seemingly inevitable and has made peace with it. Not only that, but she subscribes herself to the same fate. We need food to live, there's no food here, and we can't move. So there's only one real ending to that. And she isn't going to leave Jojen to suffer it alone. Goddamn, I love Mary. what a character. This is not to say she's not going to give them a chance. She's too strong for that. This again, is Mira Reed we're talking about. She's going to do her best to follow if she can. She just knows that they will be slow and Bran is the ultimate point of all this. So go, she says, and hopefully we'll join you. But if not, at least we're here together. Obviously, this is heartbreaking for Bran, but cold hands leaves no time for dwelling. The danger is closing in, and this truly has all been for Bran, so we need to get moving. 
They need to get him there, or this loss they're preparing to make means nothing. So off the advance party goes, Cold Hands, Hodor, Bran and Summer. Bran spares a look back for the friends who have meant so much to him, and our own hearts break just a bit as we see Mira bravely trying to drag Jojen up to safety, even using her frog spear as a makeshift cane. First timers would truly worry that this is their end, and a crueler fate one could not imagine. Bran watches, and then they are gone, lost to struggling shadows. Even Hodor, easily twice the size of Mira, probably three times the size, is struggling and slipping in this snow. It's all uphill, it's all difficult, there's snow blowing into their eyes and a razor wind, and yet they make incredible progress. Only 80 yards left according to Bran, that's good for them, but bad for us. We know we're all the closer to that final hurdle. We know there's a reason everything is so difficult, because it always is to make that last leap. And that comes true, especially as Hodor begins to struggle even more. In waist-deep snow, he needs to pull on trees and he has hardly any breath left. And suddenly, we're legitimately wondering if all of Bran's original friends are going to die just to put him on this creepy doorstep. But then the signal of all signals comes when Summer sniffs something, and it's clearly something bad, when he begins to back away. Yeah, this is a direwolf we're talking about. Bran realises that and wants to stop, but Hodor and Cold Hands are separating, and Hodor likely senses both the surrounding danger and that cold hands mean safety, so he ploughs forward anyway. And that seems to be working still, another 20 yards down, just a mere 60 to go. Even better than that, Bran thinks he can see a fire. But that's the ultimate welcoming sign, isn't it? Not just a revival, but of warmth and shelter and life. This is it. Which of course means there's also time for everything to go wrong, and George doesn't disappoint. With the following quote, Hodor screamed. He twisted, stumbled, fell. Bran felt the world slide sideways as the big stable boy spun violently around. A jarring impact drove the breath from him. His mouth was full of blood and Hodor was thrashing and rolling, crushing the crippled boy beneath him. Something has hold of his leg. A half a heartbeat, Bran thought maybe a root had gone tangled around his ankle, until the root moved. A hand he saw as the rest of the white came bursting from beneath the snow. Yes, the monsters of the dead we've seen terrorise and brutalise grown men and entire armies have finally met our little chosen one and attacked fandom sweetheart Hodor. Collectively, we as readers surely have our hearts in our mouths for this moment, the first time Bran truly comes into contact with the enemy he, theoretically, is destined to end. Hodor, to his extreme credit, wastes no time in fighting back tooth and nail, though he has no time to consider Bran and half crushes his friend to death, as we saw. Bran eventually rolls free, but that only leaves him alone and helpless as more and more whites burst from the snows. As readers, we can see they are made up of both Men of the Night's Watch and Wildlings both, and you have to wonder how long they've been here. Could be months, could be decades for all we know. The details on white preservation are still kind of murky. But the question of why they are here specifically is also interesting. It seems like they've been placed in waiting, placed as a trap. Is that because they knew Bran specifically was coming? Or because the others are aware of Bloodraven and his powers and don't want anyone getting in? And that in turn begs the question of how much the others are aware in terms of preparations against them or potential weaknesses. Is there other things they're already preparing for? And we can do little but theorise on the point. There'll be time for that later anyway, because the Whites are still coming. They come for Cold Hands, they come for Hodor, and even when they are slashed with a sword, they keep on coming. Bran spares a fort for Mira and Jojen, about to turn the corner and stumble right into this horror scene. But his warning only serves to bring attention to himself, as things take an even worse turn. Something grabbed hold of him. That is when his shout became a scream. Bran filled a fist with snow and threw it, but the White did not so much as blink. A black hand fumbled at his face, a number at his belly. His fingers felt like iron. He's going to pull my guts out. It's drama of the highest order, but luckily there is one member of the group we've forgotten about. It is Summer who bursts back onto the scene, fulfilling his most basic of instincts, protecting Bran. He did it in Winterfell when a cat's paw came. He'll do it here in the middle of nowhere against a dead man. Three cheers for our pal, Summer. As Bran rolls away and somehow has the clarity to notice that parts of the dead man still move and that he was once part of the Night's Watch, 
Bran spies that life-giving fire again. As night falls, we find Bran in the most historic, ancient of paths. Fire equals life, the cold and the dark equals death, quite literally this time. He's only 50 yards to go now, and he's starting to drag himself towards safety. Who can blame him? He's an eight-year-old kid who would be well within his right to go completely insane in this moment. The whites are busy with summer and cold hands, so now is his chance, and again, he knows that cave means everything. But that comes to an end when Hodor cries out. Bran will not abandon his friends to their fate. The way George writes it makes it seem almost a surprise to Bran when he walks into Hodor once more. But I think it was a choice on some level that he knew how to save his friend. Either way, whereas Bran has used this ability to previously just feel what it's like to walk, or sometimes just because he's bored, that ability, which we've spoken about so much as maybe not being allowed, now finally allows him to fight, and more importantly, protect his friends. Something within him is totally unleashed as he lets Hodor's strength slice the whites to pieces, even if we do still have to have that moment of dark pity for true Hodor whimpering away inside his own mind. Those old questions of morality and rule-breaking surface again, those ones we had to talk about so much in the prologue, but how can we entertain them at a moment like this, when Bran is using the ability for the most noble of purposes? Can this truly be punishable as well? Is this the abomination at work? Is a question for another day, because Mira is back on the scene, and to the surprise of absolutely no one, she is kicking ass with her frog spear. Jojen, though, is in not so good a way. He's twisting and twitching. He's on his last reserves. So Bran slash Hodor goes to him, drops his sword, and continues using this possibly horrific ability for good. And we do have to wonder if that drop sword is going to be important later on, because we're always talking about those swords. This time, the group ascend together, as they always have, with Mira keeping the whites away with her spear. Bran is so pumped full of adrenaline at truly using the capabilities of a body he could have never dreamed of having even before being pushed out a window and being able to help instead of the helpless body he normally inhabits. He even thinks about telling Mira he loves her. But there's no time for that either, as the battle takes on a new stage. Up above them, flaming figures were dancing in the snow. The whites, Bran realised. Someone set the whites on fire. And the only thing we can really guess, as readers at this point, is that Cold Hands has unleashed some new ability. Beric was dead and he had a flaming sword, so why can't Cold Hands? Whoever did it, we know it's good news. We know that fire kills whites, but then why is Summer risking himself by fighting one still? It turns out Summer is so loyal, he's willing to burn himself to protect Bran's body, still lying there in the snow. Bran himself wonders questions we can again only relate back to Rambis' prologue about what's going to happen if the whites kill his body. Those old connections are coming strong again already. The immediate danger to Bran's body seems to kick the cave defences into overdrive. It's now a cloud of ravens pouring out. The same ones Cold Hands had, or maybe there's just more of them. And all in the presence of a little girl that Bran mistakes for Ire. He's not to know it yet, but this is his first glimpse of true magic and ancient, ancient history. Bran zooms back to his own body just in time for a huge clump of snow to fall upon him and the burning white, and then darkness, end scene. End what is clearly the most action-packed Bran sequence of them all, but not the end of the chapter, as Bran awakes and immediately knows he's inside the cave. It's quite fitting his first thought is of the blood in his mouth, given how much blood is going to feature in his time here. They have reached that fire, they've reached life and salvation. The whole crew made it, although Jojen's state is left just a bit ambiguous for now. Fire is life, yes, but who wielded the fire? Mira directs the attention to their saviour, our very first child of the forest. Here's her description. It was a woman's voice, high and sweet, with a strange music in it like none he had ever heard, and a sadness that he thought might break his heart. Bran squinted to see her better. It was a girl, but smaller than Aya. Her skin dappled like a doe's beneath a cloak of leaves. Her eyes were queer, large and liquid, golden green, slitted like a cat's eyes. 
No one has eyes like that. Her hair was a tangle of brown and red and gold, autumn colours with vines and twigs and withered flowers woven through it. Now I'll admit straight up that the children of the forest are one of my favourite parts of George's world building. I love anything nature-based, any people that seem to be aligned with keeping things how they should be. I've spoken about this in other places, so I won't repeat myself too much here, but the history of the children and how the cruel corrosiveness of mankind forced them from their home and disturbed the natural order is something I'm always, always interested in. So to see them finally enter the story proper and to align with Bran, well that probably makes me as interested as anything else in his arc now. This is the big sign to us and Bran, we're not in the Seven Kingdoms anymore, Toto. Bran says it best, they had fallen into one of Old Nan's tales. Well, having said that, the child has some pretty good lines herself. Our name in the true tongue means those who sing the song of Earth. Before your old tongue was ever spoken, we had sung our songs for 10,000 years. Remember the name of the series we're reading? Yeah, now we are getting into the very soul of this world. We learn this child was born in the time of the dragon. Which dragon is not specified? But I would guess it was around the time of their first coming to Westeros with Aegon, Rhaenys and Visenya. With 200 years of watching them, then 100 years in this cave. But there's nothing to say she wasn't born in the time of Valeria's height and is even older than that. Whichever it is, we've just walked into living history and it surely has to blow our collective minds. We've just met someone who was alive when dragons were still around. And not only that, but spent her time watching, listening and learning. Can you imagine the treasure trove of information this single child of the forest must have? How, as the Song of Ice and Fire fans and gigantic nerds about history in general, can this be anything less than thrilling? And she's even got jokes to go along with it. 200 years, said Mira. The child smiled. Men, they are the children. Amen to that. We've honestly got a serious contender for favourite character ever right here after two minutes of meeting her. Unfortunately, the entrance comes with a caveat. Cold hands truly cannot enter. The child doesn't seem bothered as he's dead anyway, so what danger can come to him? That's an interesting concept. Can a white kill another white? We may well find out one day. So unfortunately, it's an unceremonious goodbye to Cold Hands, a man slash creature who saved these children's lives, not to mention Sam and Gilly and the baby. His mystery goes on as yet unanswered, and all we can do is really thank him. So off the group go, down, down, down into the earth, filled with what we instantly recognise as weirwood roots. That's cool. We've spoken about these trees a lot, but never really seen their roots, so it's a whole new concept. Luckily, we get confirmation that Jojen is still alive, although he's a bit out of it. He smiles when he sees a fire, and he talks of dreams. And that may well be the final smile of Jojen Reed, and perhaps his final dream as well. His task is complete. The fates may well abandon him now, like we mentioned earlier. Further and further down they go in this maze of tunnels and passageways. They must be stupidly far down once they hear water. They begin to find humongous caves and yet more children of the forest. We've been speaking about Bran leaving the world of the living behind, and he finally seems to realise the same thing. All the colour is gone, Bran realised suddenly. The world was black soil and white wood. The heart tree at Windfell had roots as thick around as a giant's leg, but these were even thicker. Bran had never seen so many of them. There must be a whole grove of weirwoods growing up above us. So that's doubly exciting, the fact that this weirwood seems to be bigger or better than the others, and that there might be loads of them up above him. It's like putting a massive time antenna on his head. But there is something in the macabre here too, as Bran finds thousands upon thousands of bones from all types of beings. Is that because they came here for their natural resting place, or because some of them have been used up by whatever dwells here in this cave? It's definitely not the most welcome of sights, is it? Still, they are going down until they seem to be at the very bottom, beside a bridge over an unseeable river beneath them. Bran is worried they might need to cross, but the child redirects them to the single most important moment of Bran's life, meeting the Three-Eyed Crow. I'm going to read it to you at length. 
Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne, and embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. His body was so skeletal and his clothes so rotted that at first Bran took him for another corpse, a dead man propped up so long that the roots had grown over him, under him, and through him. What skin the corpse lord showed was white, save for a bloody blotch that crept up his neck onto his cheek. His white hair was fine and thin as root hair and long enough to brush against the earthen floor. Roots coiled around his legs like wooden serpents. One burrowed through his breeches into the desiccated flesh of his thigh to emerge again from his shoulder. A spray of dark red leaves sprouted from his skull and grey mushrooms spotted his brow. A little skin remained, stretched across his face, tight and hard as white leather, but even that was fraying, and here and there, the brown and yellow bone beneath was poking through. Here he is, everybody, the crow, the reason, maybe even the cause of all of this. And absolutely, unmistakably, he is Brynden Rivers, Blood Raven, half Targaryen, former Hand of the King, former Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and all-around interesting guy. And he's supposed to be, like, 125 years old at this point or to look at it another way he was like 77 nearly 80 when he went missing so it depends what way you want to look at it is he 80 and has just kind of stopped or is he actually 125 and has kept going or whatever it doesn't really matter does it judging by the state we find him in and none of this is obviously no knowable by Bran anyway or by many first timers depending on what they read and when but to most of the fandom now we can recognize what big deal this is i mean like on top of the fact he's met some magical tree man we know there is a dark, also unknowable side to this key figure of history. We know there is so much we don't know about him, and now he's here to become Bran's mentor. We are so far past the word importance, I don't even know what to call it. Bran also notices that this former man is now basically one of the earth, one of the weirwood, in the most literal of senses. We're already wondering if this is Bran's fate too. There's the highlighting of his being a man of the Night's Watch as well, and that will surely play some important role in the future. And of course, there is this overall theme of death. We've been speaking about it for ages. Bran and his monsters. Bran leaving the world of life. And now he is talking to a living skeleton. The man begins to speak. And the overall atmosphere of importance and destiny. And the, just the sense of the overall, for lack of a better term, comes out as clear as day. Here's another quote. I have been many things, Bran. Now I am as you see me. And now you will understand why I could not come to you. Except in dreams. I have watched you for a long time. Watched you with a thousand eyes and one. I saw your birth, and that of your Lord Father before you. I saw your first step, heard your first word, was part of your first dream. I was watching when you fell, and now you have come to me at last, Brandon Stark, though the hour is late. We know not why, we know not how, but we do finally confirm not only there is this man who came to Bran in his third chapter of A Game of Thrones and has been gently guiding him, sending at least cold hands and the ravens and who knows how much more he's arranged, but it also goes back further than that. Back to Bran's birth. Back to Ned's birth. If we thought the child of the forest was living history, then what about this guy? This has all been arranged. This has all been known. Bran has been expected. He is the centre. He is the reason. But why? What is it he's going to do? What exactly are you going to do with him, Blood Raven? We don't know here. We don't know by the end of the book, truly. But you'll be hard-pressed to find any bigger mysteries within this series. We've always said that others and North are the true story. The real problem in comparison to the political distractions of the South. Well, guess what? Here it is, bare and proud as you like. Poor Bran still believes this all has something to do with healing his legs. That's understandable. His injuries define his entire life. Of course, he's hoping he can be healed. He's just met a man who's half a tree and clearly supposed to be dead, so healing some legs can't be too hard by comparison, can it? Unfortunately, that is not to be. Bloodraven has bigger problems and powers to tackle. Final quote. Bran's eye is filled with tears. 
We came such a long way. The chamber echoed to the sound of the Black River. You will never walk again, Bran, the pale lips promised. But you will fly. Clearly, I don't think you need me to tell you, this is one of the best chapter endings ever. Not just this confirmation that we've done it, we've made it, Bran is going to learn his powers and maybe save the world, or who knows what with them, but just the tease of flying alone. Is this a warging thing? Does he mean ravens? Does he mean dragons? This guy is a targ, he might know, and that would make a lot of sense for saving the world type vibes. Perhaps he just means he'll fly through history. Fine, fine by me, I'll take that. Who knows? The point is, we're now basically confirmed to eventually find out Bran is going to get there, we're going to learn some things. And honestly, let me say it again, can there be anything more exciting? Can there be anything you want to explore more? I've long said I'm not a Bran fan in general, but you can chuck that right out the window. You can be a Jamie Lannister about that now. I mentioned in the prepper episode that Dance Bran was my favourite of all the brands, and I think you can see why. This is simply amazing stuff that I am desperate, like many of you, or all of you I assume, to find out more. I want to take this actual walk through history. I want to see Kid Ned and all that came before him. I want to uncover those most ancient and basic of secrets about the true order of the world from a time prior to men, and there's all a possibility here. The horizon is literally endless. How cruel of George to only give us one more chapter of such after this, where we'll get a little bit of what we're after, but not nearly enough. We all know this is going to be absolutely massive at some point, the biggest. Bran is going to put these powers to use. Bloodraven is going to show him and teach him some really key points in history, and we might even learn true intentions and causes along the way of why this world is the way it is. I'm going to say it again. There cannot be anything more exciting to come. I'm not doing it justice, I know that. I don't think that's actually possible. So I'll just say again, this is huge, as huge as it gets. And this plot point makes me as hungry for Winds of Winter as anything else. I don't normally get that super, like, urge to read it. I said before, if George says tomorrow, that's it, I'm not putting any more out. I'll say, thanks, George. I love these five books. But this one, it really does make me want that book in my hand. This chapter and the promise of Bran's future, they just definitely give me that feeling. So well done, dance, Bran. My cap goes off to you. And to be quite honest, I could spend another 10 minutes, another half an hour just going over possibilities, ideas about what Bran is going to get up to, what Bloodraven has been doing or how he got to this point, how he found out about it all. We could honestly go on about that forever and ever. And luckily, there are plenty of places, plenty of essays and podcasts where you can go and explore that train of thought. Unfortunately for us, not unfortunately, but we must move on. We have two more chapters to go. And they're slightly different in tone, I'll admit, from the last two. So let's switch over now. Let's go ahead all the way back over to Essos like we were earlier as we head into Tyrion 4. Wave goodbye to Bran. What a chapter, sure. But let's move on now to Tyrion 4. So we move from the insanely magical to the opposite. If Bran be king of magic, then Tyrion has long been the king of George's other side of the coin, politics. Some magical type things might link into Tyrion's storyline every once in a while, for instance some confusing river routes later, but we'll have to wait until his next chapter for that. Instead, we do get more of the political, even if the arena has shrunk to the size of this single boat. Tyrion 4 is basically a roundup of how a day in the life of the crew works, with Tyrion getting better introduced to all of them. Because this is Tyrion, he's got to try and figure out how these people can be used, or how best to dance between them. As he hinted at in Tyrion 3, there are secrets to be uncovered. He's already found out about Griff, but now he'll get to the far more important discovery, as his wits and wiles come back to him in full strength. And I must say, this is one of the more enjoyable Tyrion chapters. This is just a nice chapter overall, but especially for how things are slowly revealed, how Tyrion teases it out slowly and comes to his conclusions, it is a brilliant read. As for the chapter itself, boat life has truly begun, and initially, it's not much fun. The temptations of Tyrion Lannister have all been removed. He's not allowed his precious alcohol. 
Women are obviously always a tough subject for him now, but that's also not something he can pursue, tempted as he might be by the form of Scepter the Moor. No, Tyrion actually has to concentrate on the task at hand and his new surroundings, hence the turning back to intrigue and people playing that he used to get so involved in. While it all remains a game linked to the world he no longer cares for, he does find himself with at least a little investment, or perhaps amusement, about this mission he's fallen into and the people he's fallen along with. The opening lines are setting this atmosphere that is oh so foreign to Tyrion. How much time has he ever spent aboard a boat even this size, beside his actual trip to Pentos? I don't believe he ever has memories of sailing around Westeros at any point. He might have gone up and down the coast back in the Westerlands, maybe taken a trip to Fair Isle, but generally this is all new. We also get some nice chapter sequencing. The moon is also present in Bran's chapters, and Tyrion takes note of it here too. He claims it is watching me like some great eye. Oh, did we not just meet a fellow of one eye whose job it is to watch important things? So is this just George giving us a nod that Tyrion is indeed very important for the overall story and not just the normal political one? Could be. Those denials that I mentioned a second ago are brought up immediately too. He's allowed no drink and is therefore suffering given how much he's always depended on it, but especially lately. It feels like alcoholism isn't ever brought up that much about Tyrion despite the fact we've seen him drink far more than anyone else, even Cersei. So the physical effects are going to manifest and that ties in with his cramps and sleeping up here on the cabin roof, soothing as that might be. Tyrion claims he never sleeps well anywhere, so what's the difference? But his body is certainly noting a change. Again, he's simply not used to this. We get the quickest note of some modesty about Scepter the Moor as well. He cares about her opinion, though we know not why, even if it is pretty easy to guess. But before we get to all those newbies, Tyrion comes across one we've already met in Griff, a man who keeps himself out of sight in the day and up at night. Is that because he worries he might be recognisable? That seems overkill, but then again, he's carrying the most sacred commodity he can imagine. He's on a mission to do right by his deceased friend, so he'll take every precaution he can. We see his eagerness straight away. All he wants is to get to Volantis. Presumably, part of that is just wanting to get on with the mission that he's been waiting for, but some is likely believing that young Griff is going to be way more secure and safe once he gets a hand on at least one of those Daenerys dragons. If we doubt his seriousness or commitment at all, Tyrion wipes that away by claiming that Jon Con reminds him of Bronn. Whether he means in terms of physical skill or absolute cutthroatedness isn't exactly clear, but cutthroat is exactly what Jon Con is with Tyrion. No drink, full stop, I do not care about the consequences. I'm in charge, and what I say goes. Which makes sense, as Tyrion says, there are perils on the river, as he will soon discover. As Tyrion compares the dawn to dragons, Griff retires, and the new bunch wake. First off is Septon the Moor, arriving and showing exactly why Tyrion cares about her opinion of his body, because he is quite obsessed with hers. The question of Septon the Moor is one we really can't expand on. There's a whole bunch of theories floating around on her true identity, something we seem to be saying more and more in this book. Evidence of her stretch marks certainly makes sense that she's something to do with being related to young Griff, even if not his mother. But equally, she might be a mother to no one of note. If Fire and Blood gave us anything, it was multiple stories of women from various backgrounds and experiences becoming scepters. We don't even know for sure she's an official scepter. Just because she's got the uniform and the info doesn't prove anything definitively. Certainly, she has opinions on chastity or modesty we've not seen repeated in the Seven Kingdoms so far. She's also quite willing to ditch those white robes once they reach Valor-based Volantis. Maybe she does the same thing in Westeros when they might bump into actual scepters. As with Halden and Duck, she is someone very valuable to young Griff, not just in the teaching of him, but someone that he also cares about deeply. More than likely, she is filling some pseudo-motherly role for him. Let's hope that attachment doesn't get used against him at some point. As many strengths as this group have given him, they can't protect against the weakness of having people you care for. So her identity, or reason to be involved in such a cause, remains a mystery for Tyrion, and we know how much that bothers him even if he claims it doesn't. He can work out why all the others are doing this, but why is she? He contends that he is only looking at her as a sexual conquest, and that might be true in this moment of watching, but that's not how his mind works overall. For now, he has to just settle for getting aroused by her and her giving some flirty smiles back. 
He says it makes him feel alive. So I guess that's a good note on the fact he's seeking that kind of feeling, and at least he doesn't have the kind of troublesome thoughts towards her as he does other women in this book. Why is that though? Is it because the women he does have bad interactions with, he figures are worth less because of who they are? Is it the fact that they are sex workers and that is just too tied into his psyche as painful due to Shay and Tywin's lie about Tysha? Does he want to cause them the same pain he believes was caused by their profession? Luckily, we don't have to deal with that argument just yet, and the more remains one of the more enjoyable points for Tyrion. He is a very sexual person, and he hasn't partaken in that for a long time now. You might have thought that would make Lamore's presence harder to bear, but he seems to go the other way. We also don't know much of her future at all. She makes her across to Westeros, possibly her homeland, with the others. As for the taking of Storm's End, and then King's Landing after, it's hard to discern what role she'll play. Supposedly, when the big reveal comes, she might take a step into the light and also get a big reveal, or perhaps she will have her backstory uncovered for us at some point, and it is simply thematically linked to the idea of making right what once went wrong. Next, we also meet Yandri and, I'm not sure how you say it, Yasilla? Yasilla? I'm going to go Yasilla this time. A pretty nice, steady couple that help give a nice atmosphere to this gentle boat journey. Neither of them are really going to have moments of note here, or assumedly, in the future. They get the job done, and one day they might be able to tell of how they are part of a much larger story. Overall, they seem like pretty good people. And that all adds into Tyrion's little rehab here. How often has he been in the presence of decent, good people? The general atmosphere is improved on as the boat gets on its way. Beautiful women, waters full of colourful turtles, biscuits and bacon being cooked up and left to steal. It's not too bad as mornings go, is it? Duck is next up to also enjoy breakfast, and it's with him and Yandri that Tyrion has a bit of an arrogant tourist moment when he contends that the Rhoyne is nowhere near the greatest river in the world. The Westerosi rivers are at least as grand, he claims, little knowing that they are not even on the true Rhoyne yet. That's just one of the lessons that Tyrion Lannister will learn as he goes here. Finally comes the important one, the one we'll get our first true look at in this chapter. Certainly, on first look, young Griff fits the bill. He's young, athletic, good-looking, everything you might hope for on a potential prince or even a king. You have to imagine that Griff, Illyro, and Varys are pretty thankful on that point in terms of getting a marriage for Daenerys and for his eventual taking of the Iron Throne. They've also locked out there's eyes, as similar to his supposed fathers, but Tyrion is a devil for details, and he notes that they aren't all that similar, is what he says. By lamplight they turned black, and in the light of dusk they seemed purple. Hmm, oh, how interesting. What family do we know that often has purple or violet eyes? Then again, what offshoot from said family do we also know has purple eyes? And is George hinting or teasing when he happens to include the word black here? Good questions. He also seems to be the belle of the ball. While Duck and Tyrion get whacked from a spoon while trying to eat, young Griff is being pushed to have more and more breakfast. As the chapter goes, we'll see that the whole crew dotes on him, cares about him. He is very obviously of high importance. For his own part, Tyrion puts in some work. Just because he's not used to this life doesn't mean he won't give it a good go. Even though he does soon get into another light-hearted argument with Yandri, where Tyrion assumes he knows the surrounding land better than the person who's lived here for years. The slave catchers seldom come so far north, said Yandri. Slave catchers would be a welcome change from turtles. Not being an escaped slave, Tyrion need not fear being caught. But he's also not doing great at not tempting fate. This isn't the first time that Tyrion has similar thoughts about slavery, which, uh, well, it's going to come back to bite him. Next up is some light entertainment for everybody, as young Griff and Duck have their daily spa session. We can see young Griff's prowess. Yes, he's stout matched on weapons that favour overall strength. He still has a lot of growing up to do. But he's more than adept with a sword, and manages to get the big man into the river. Even with fatigue, Duck is no easy win, so we should really weigh that pretty heavily and add it to the list of kingly attributes that the kid has going for him. 
After his bloodline, looking good with a sword might be the most important of optics for being presented as the perfect king, especially when you're in Westeros and especially when the rival you are going up against will be compared to is Tommen. I doubt Ilio and the others even consider Daenerys a threat given that she's a woman. And obviously no one is going to vote for a woman with a man is also an option, of course, who in their right mind would do that? Say Ilio, Griff and probably Varys too, unfortunately. It's not only useful for optics, because there is a chance young Griff will have to actually fight in real battles to take the Seven Kingdoms. I'm sure the original plan would be to try him out in garbage time so everyone can see him beat up on some remnants of an army, but there's many a fighter who knows his stuff and would be able to spot a faker. And as it happens, thanks to Tyrion, he will actually be going into proper battles, so all these little sparring sessions are truly valuable. And it seems genuinely valuable to all on board as well. Something to watch, something to laugh at when Duck goes into the water. The atmosphere is as friendly as you can get, and that's expanded on as, in retaliation to another smart remark, Duck throws Tyrion into the water too. As he's pulled out by the courteous young Griff, no less, Tyrion supplies him all with some more made-up stories of his former life, and then tops it off with a nice little cartwheel to make the young lad laugh. Yes, it's the return of gymnastics, Tyrion. My, my, hasn't it been a long time. We've all had a laugh at the ability that Tyrion supposedly forgot about here, and George does a little retconning to explain that this is just the latest on the long list of things he once enjoyed as a child, only for Tywin to take away. He even made Cersei laugh once, now that takes some skill. So yes, only twice did Tyrion do his tumbles in the story as far as I remember. Perhaps we'll never see them again, but consider this. When was the last time he busted out? It's when he met Jon Snow, wasn't it? The next time, it's in front of young Griff. So maybe Tyrion just needs to be in the presence of dragon blood for his body to loosen up and get that type of energy. Who knows what he'll be able to pull off when he finally meets Daenerys, maybe he's going to dunk it or something. To my mind, this is now canon and absolutely confirmed, thank you very much. As young Griff heads off to have his Sept of the Moor lessons, Tyrion thinks about his own duties, though we first get this mention of him having to don yet more child's clothing to replace his wet clothes. One of the chests that came from Ilio apparently had children's clothing in. Old clothing as well, apparently. What I can't work out is why. Why would Ilio send them children's clothing when they had no child aboard? Is this purely for Tyrion's benefit, or was this always the plan? It's a bit suspicious. Either way, Tyrion figures the new clothing would anger Tywin, so he doesn't mind it. As for his duty, it is to scribble down everything he knows of dragons, from childhood tales to historical facts, also that Griff can study them later. Again, we have to assume that his and Ilio's plan was for young Griff to be gifted or to take at least one dragon from Daenerys, and 100% they likely thought he'd get the biggest and most powerful, again because of his gender, and therefore they need all the knowledge they can get to help him achieve that. I really doubt they'd even consider the chance that Danny would turn them down and become an enemy, but this general knowledge helps with that as well. Tyrion thinks on the various books that might help him with such research and where they might be found. Valantis, as luck would have it, is one such spot, but there's other, better books that history has taken away as Tyrion makes some connections to fire and blood via Septon Bath. Or perhaps a much better connection is to the book known as Blood and Fire, or sometimes, as Tyrion says here, The Death of Dragons, the only surviving copy of which was supposedly hidden away in a locked vault beneath the citadel. Mmm, put your thinking caps on everybody. Something locked deep beneath the citadel. Well, I'm sure a lot of things are locked away down there, but we also happen to know that someone is in Old Town right now trying to get to areas of the citadel that they are not supposed to be in. And it might be someone who's a member of a group possibly paid to get rid of magic, or to stop the maesters from getting rid of magic. It's unclear who's doing what, but apparently there is something down there that might be a how-to guide on how to rid the world of dragons. Well, it might just be a snazzy title, but if it is the former, then there are a lot of people who'd want it, and we know someone is doing some searching. Of course, if it does turn out to be real and effective, just remember that Euron is also headed that way. So only one member of the crew remains to be seen. 
the Halfmaster. He comes up now and again tries to trip Tyrion up about the details of his story, but Tyrion relishes in those details. We've always known this and we mentioned it in Tyrion 3, so he keeps on with sprinkling a bit of truth on top of his lies. Howden likely figures this is what he's doing and is just trying to figure out which bit is the truth. They all end up down in Halfmaster's well-stocked cabin as young Griff goes about his lessons, and we can see that in some respects, the plan to mould this boy into something kingly is very well constructed. We've seen him show off keen fighting skills, now it turns out he's also very intelligent. Tyrion will say in a moment he's already more intelligent than most Westerosi lords, and definitely the kings. Back in Quentin's chapter, we spoke about the rarity and worth of multiple languages, and young Griff seems to be adept at that also. He really is being shaped into someone who would be the perfect king. For some, maybe like Varys, perhaps this is the whole point regardless of his true heritage. He has realised what Westeros never has, that the fit is more important than the blood. So if we can come up with something to move past that, we could finally put someone on the throne who might actually do some good. Personally, I think this may well be the case, but the truth will out and young Griff will be cast aside despite being perfectly suited merely because he doesn't have the right parents. It'd be a pretty good comment on this foolish style of governance that we've witnessed for five books now. But languages are only the beginning. Geometry, which I'm betting is not taught in that many Westerosi castles, is then followed by history, which we know George is always going to spend a little more time on. At this point, young Griff is getting bored, because as much effort as his handlers might put in, he is still a teenage human. George uses this as an excuse to get in some exposition about Volantis, specifically the makeup of their tiger and elephant government, and how they came to be. In fact, it's a pretty interesting package on how most of Essos came to its current state. As we mentioned in Quentin 1, Argalac Durandon got involved from Storm's End, before Aegon the Conqueror had his bit with Valerian. I wonder if all Young Griff's history lessons sneak some former Targaryen in there. I'm still not sure why George gives so much focus to the elephants and tigers of Phalantis. True, we are there for election season later on in Tyrion's arc, but it doesn't affect him that much. You have to think this is going to have some big payoff on wins, most likely when Daenerys finally comes east. We're told of this specific group of Triarchs and their political allegiances, so is Danny going to come along and change the status quo and hand it back to the tigers or something like that? She has a habit of doing such things. It is also included, obviously, to teach young Griff something, and he claims it's this. And what lesson can we draw from Volantine history? asked Halden. If you want to conquer the world, you best have dragons. Tyrion views the response as a joke, but this might be what Griff and Ilya are hoping to get across to him. What a shame that Tyrion is about to undo all that hard work. After the lesson, Tyrion begins his new lover, Savas, a game he's likely wishing he'd had his old life. And as they begin to play, Tyrion puts on his suspicion hat as he asks a question any first-time reader would be by now. Why go to all this effort of teaching and arms and spiritual guidance for who is, again, supposed to just be a random employee's son? Halden really doesn't have an answer, and Tyrion begins to smell blood in the water. Ilya does not play Zavas. No, thought the dwarf. He plays the Game of Thrones, and you and Griffin duck are only pieces to be moved where he will and sacrificed at need, just as he sacrificed for Ceres. Even in so gentle an environment as the shy maid, Tyrion is still seeking the strings that everyone is dancing on, and he figures he's beginning to see the true structure of things. This is all a ploy, this is all a plan of one specific person at the centre, but just to be sure, he figures he'll try and extract some information from his opponent. Howden perhaps shows off some of why he is only a half-maester. There are some incredible secrets that he could stand to lose, whereas Tyrion has very little to lose by comparison. But as per usual, a bit of pricking of pride will do the job. Tyrion understands people, he understands how to unlock them. The day you defeat me at Savas will be the day turtles crawl out of my ass. The half-maester moved his spears. You have your wager, little man. Tyrion stretched a hand out for his dragon. As the lessons a moment ago said, dragons seem to be pretty important for winning. Three hours later, Tyrion is emerging, claiming Howden has turtles crawling out of his ass. So secrets have been swapped, secrets so heavy they make him light-headed, so heavy he needs a drink. Yet he doesn't focus on them quite yet. Instead, he thinks on Tysha. Perhaps because he's just learned of information so important to the world at large, he wants to focus back on what's truly important to him. He still hopes to find her in Philantis. 
He still hopes to apologise, though he also has a very problematic sentence where it gives the impression her gang rape would have been okay if she were a sex worker, which is very, very clearly not the case. From there, Tyrion is hit again by something much bigger than he expected it to be, just to keep this theme rolling. First, another city, far larger than Goyandroy, and just as ruined. Just as ruined by dragons, centuries ago, and yet still not recovered. Yes, George knows his timing. He knows how to make that important information Tyrion just learned all the more important and all the more impactful. And then on top of that comes the True River. Another river he knew at once, rushing towards the Rhoyne. That was Nymeria's palace, and this is all that remains of Nysar, her city. Yolo! shouted Yandri as the shy maid passed the point. Tell me again of those Westerosi rivers as big as Mother Rhoyne. At least Tyrion has enough humility to admit he was wrong this time out. He seems genuinely surprised at the sheer size of this new river, and notes how historically important this place is. As we know our history, we agree. Again, this is a place formed by dragons, and the river is going to get even bigger. Later, it will be so large it will seem as if they are sailing on the sea. That's really pretty incredible. As they sail, Tyrion starts noting there are yet more turtles. Big ones. Turtles have been present throughout this chapter, and you might wonder why. Well, apparently it's all built up to this single moment of a humongous turtle with a bellowing call appearing above the water. This seemingly singular creature, who some believe to be a god of sorts. And maybe he is. Or maybe he's just a really cool old turtle. A turtle, said Tyrion. A turtle bigger than this boat. It was him, cried Jandri. The old man of the river. And why not, Tyrion grinned. Gods and wonders always appear to attend the birth of kings. So at his last ending, Tyrion worked out Griff last time, and he ends this one hinting at what young Griff is. It's astounding how quick his mind works. For some of us, there's no way we pick up on that and might not even understand what he's thinking here. But once we realise what he means, once we click what the purpose of this whole chapter is and why we've had so much focus on young Griff, the whole thing slowly starts to sink in. Oh, this is no straightforward mission. There is another element, another very, very key element. There is someone these people want to be a king, likely with the help of dragons. Yet they are saying that they should meet with Daenerys. So the obvious question is, if young Griff should be king, where does that leave Danny? Tyrion told us earlier, a peace to be moved, a sacrifice to be made, same as Viserys. No, we don't have the reason why he would be king yet, but still this is a major, major breakthrough in the plot of the entire series, the first introduction for an issue we're all well attuned to now, even if we have a few answers yet to discover. Whereas Tyrion has just discovered what is, at worst, the third biggest storyline of the final act, maybe? It's damn important, and it's a great chapter about the discovery of this entirely new aspect to the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, and to Danny's journey. Well done, Detective Tyrion. Okay, so hold your horses. I know at this point, after four chapters worth of me talking, you're ready to stop having to listen to my voice, but no, not this time. We have an extra. We are going five chapters. Yeah, a lot of talking today. But our reward for doing so much is we get to see our good friend Davos again. Yes, Davos too. Let's get right to it now. Like we said at the top, this one's slightly different in tone, but much more enjoyable, much nicer. So see if you can hang on just for a little bit more. Let's get to our fifth chapter and wrap up this entirely amazing part of A Dance of Dragons. Right here at the beginning as well. We'll get to that at the end. So while it's true we are used to seeing an imprisoned Davos or a Davos having to talk his way out of a jam of a lord like in Davos 1, his true element is being down with the people, in the inns and on the docks. That's the world he truly knows. That's how he was originally utilised in this series with Stannis' letter. That's where he can be most effective. That's what Davos is all about. If his first chapter was all about him being on his lowest rung, then let's give him one chapter where he is actually free and allowed to go where he likes, notice all these little signs and come up with a pretty accurate picture of what's going on. Because after this, it's kind of back to being in irons again before another secret mission comes up. 
For the most part, this chapter is working concurrently with Theon 1 slash Reach to build up this picture of what the northern scene currently looks like and how the pieces are soon going to interact with each other. We had hints in Davos's first chapter, but now those points are going to be confirmed or expanded upon as we discover White Harbour for the first time. We spend a lot of time thinking about the Manderleys and generally build on the idea that this is all going to be a very large part of the book. Throw in some classic Danny rumours and your usual staple of Davos choosing loyalty for Stannis over everything else, even when every side is pointing the opposite way, and you've got a chapter, my friend. This, then, is the tale of Davos Seaworth getting in yet more trouble, even through means that are much more him in element, because at the end of the day, he is a man committed to his job and to his king. Let's go. Luckily, we've not had to wait too long from Davos 1 to discover that Lord Burrell did indeed let him go. We figured he would, given the information we got in Feast, but still, you never know. So while this chapter opens with the success of getting where he is supposed to be going, finally, and even with Davos arriving on such a jolly vessel as the Merry Midwife, there is still this overall cloud hanging over the proceedings for first-time readers. Okay, Davos has made it to White Harbour, but Cersei told us he died in White Harbour by Wyman Manderley's orders, so we still have to worry. George, are you really going to make us watch this? Are you really going to do this thing? Now, he may not have wanted to split the books in two originally, but George sure is taking advantage of the chronology issue as a way to create some extra tension. It really is ingenious. It makes us think we already know the conclusion for one of our favourite characters, and he's keeping that idea up with every step. That's especially important given the end of this, and probably even more so the next chapter. So I suppose it's nice in a way that Davos is coming on so quickly. After that huge previous gap, we've had to wait a mere five chapters to reach Davos 2, and we're only going to have to wait three more chapters for his third instalment. Lucky us. Needless to say, this is easily Davos's higher ever frequency in any book. So, again, we're pretty lucky. Even after that, it's only a nine-chapter wait to Davos 4, and then unfortunately that's the end of his arc. It still seems so strange to wrap our heads around for both Davos and Bran that we'll lose them so early, but at least we're racing ahead to find out Davos does not actually die on Wyman's command. We can't wait for that. As we said, Davos arrives to his long-awaited destination aboard the Merry Midwife, a ship perhaps comparable to Davos, a bit long on the tooth, not generally considered all that snazzy even on its best day, but you know what? It gets the job done. Okay, true, the original plan was to arrive on Salador Sands Valerian, which is a good name, to lend some grandeur to his coming and a bit of prestige to the envoy of Stannis Baratheon. That might have helped with the mission and the colourful fleet of Salador's definitely would have made a big impression. But let's be honest, it's not very Davos, is it? He's a smuggler, always has been at heart, so why not smuggle himself in here too? So that's how he comes to this city, one he knows well even if we don't. Remember, White Harbour has been a hot talking point ever since Eddard Stark had a conversation with his wife Catelyn in King's Landing. When it seemed war was brewing, Ned gave commands to White Harbour should be warned and fortified. He knew of its importance. Unfortunately, Catelyn never got those orders when he needed to go, but Rob also knew of its importance when he went to war, and we ourselves had it and its ruling family's value lined out to us via Brad's interactions with Wyman Mandley himself back in Clash. It is one of the key locations of our home kingdom, and we're finally about to kick the tour in the here in this fifth book. Thanks to Davos having come here before, he's able to tell us that things have changed, whatever happened to Ned's orders. Now, it's been six years since he was last around, so theoretically, Wyman Manzi could have just so happened to have been making these changes, these rather war-based changes, before Robert ever asked Ned to be his hand, but I think we know these are recent additions. Wyman promised as much to Bran back in Clash, which only goes to remind us how different things might have been if Rob had access to a proper fleet. Alas alarms indeed, we've discussed that before, but it's always good to imagine. Davos notes increased defences, a tall and well-defended wall that protects the inner harbour, and smoke rising from Seal Rock, a large stone outcrop that protects the outer harbour as well. 
In general, we think, well, this is good. Defend the city, defend the people, defend the north as well. We've been told over and over how this place is often a true gateway as opposed to the difficult Moat Caelan. That's true, but for Davos's purposes, it could mean trouble, depending on who Wyman Manderley is trying to defend against. We now get a bit of information both on White Harbour itself and on Davos's past, probably more than we've ever had before on his younger days when he served aboard the Cobblecat, another good name. The city is compared to its peers throughout Westeros, and though it might be smaller, it basically seems to be the best maintained in my opinion. It's smartly laid out, it's clean, and according to Davos's old master, it smells the way it should. It maintains its proper partnership with the sea. That makes sense, we're in the north, everything is just better in the north. It just is. There's proper values and all that. Although we must also give a nod to the Mandalays for maintaining such order and organising the city so well. They must play a lot of SimCity 3000, that's what I'm guessing. And also to the Starks for enabling them to do so. Again, the importance of the place is well known, well drilled into us by now. As for Davos personally, it seems to be the place he's liked most in these books, aside from the deck of a ship. He appreciates that proper sea smell, but there's little time to focus on that. He's still looking at steel rock, at the scorpions and spitfires that have replaced the lucky seals of his youth. Davos realises he is voluntarily walking back into a war he so easily could have left behind. We mentioned this a lot in Davos 1, but now the man catches himself with the opportunity that he's left behind. Here's its quote. He could have made his way back south, to Myra and their sons. I've lost four sons in the king's service, and my fifth serves as his squire. I should have the right to cherish the two boys who still remain. It has been too long since I saw them. Oh, our poor silly Davos. Of course that chance is still technically alive, but he's already moving his thoughts back to the war and the challenges that Stannis faces. No time for home, no time for family, apparently. Everything is geared towards Stannis. Having seen these new defences and war preparations, and thinking on what he's giving up, Davos tries to convince himself the mission makes sense. The Mandalites were loyal to the Starks, and the Boltons betrayed the Starks. The Mandalites and Boltons never got on anyway, again reminding us of what we learn in Clash and all those long-ago connections to Danella Hornwood, etc, etc. So, all of that considered, the Mandalays should be on the hunt for strong allies. Stannis is a strong ally, in Davos's mind at least, so he's in with a chance. True, what Godric Burrell told him in Sisterton would dash those hopes and really punch a hole in Stannis's campaign, as we discussed in Davos 1, but there's no chance Davos is risking this to rumour. He will go and find out himself, no matter how low the probability. Let's cast our mind back to Clash yet again, as Davos thinks on what the tall jetty wall is hiding in the inner harbour. Cotterbike had told him it was warships, although we don't know how he'd know such a thing, and Davos admits they could easily be obscured by this wall. Well, Wyman did promise Bran a new northern fleet would be constructed for King Rob. Obviously, not in time for it to be used, but it's there anyway. And that's exciting as well. What could that be used for? There's every chance even Davos might get to use a few. But will they come out in force for his secret mission? Maybe this will be the fleet that brings Rickon home. Or will they have further use in the war against the Boltons? Don't forget, we'll later find out there are forces hidden up the White Knife as well, waiting to be of use. It's all very, very interesting, and again, something I had to consider a lot for the castle's book. Davos gives us some extra details on the city too. There's the new castle on the hill, the Sept of Snows, again, another good name in this chapter, and a reminder that the Mandalays worship the Seven. There is still a godswood here, of course, we are in the north, but it's been relegated to the old wolf's den, a former fortress and now a prison. Davos might be able to tell us more about it soon enough. It's while looking around that Davos spies the flags. All Mandalay mermen, no wolves, which has likely always been a staple here. But, crucially, no lions either, so Davos thinks the chance is still alive. That's good, that's great. He hasn't wasted his time, let's get going. Now he can look along the wharves quite happily, at some river runners that might be important later, at some other sea ships as well, and then, after one short paragraph of confidence, Davos's bubble gets burst. Here's the quote. And there beyond, the warship. 
the sight of her sent a knife through his hopes. Her hull was black and gold, her figurehead a lime and an upraised paw. Lion Star, read the letters on her stern, beneath a fluttering banner that bore the arms of the boy king on the iron throne. Well, bugger. The phrase of indeed beating him to it, Godric Burrell, was right, and Davos will unfortunately have to debase himself by dealing with such cretins. Still, there's no flags up in general. Just because Wyman has welcomed them doesn't technically mean a decision's been made. Davos will leap into a 1% chance. But there's no time to waste. We've got to get going now. Just to prove he's serious, he tells the captain of the Cobblecat that they don't need to wait for him if he's longer than a day. This is it. He's all in. And just as we leave the docks here, this is actually an extra good connection that he sees the Lion Star because it's Davos, again, back in Clash of Kings, on the Battle of the Blackwater. He thinks, hey, Lion Star's not here because that was part of the escort fleet that took Marcella down to Dawn. So Davos saw, hey, Lion Star's not here. Where are all the good ships? when he was sailing into the Black War, he suspected a trap was coming. So that's a really good little connection by George there. Back to this chapter though. Over the years, Davos has often reflected on how unlordly he looks, and definitely how unhandy he looks, and how it sometimes puts him at a disadvantage. But today, it's quite the opposite. Again, he's back in his element, and he's able to move at a much quicker speed, with much less chance of being noticed. Now he can hear things a hand wouldn't, see things the way a lord wouldn't. He can gather all the information he possibly can about his chances of brokering the much-needed alliance. And just like that, he's into the city itself. And it looks pretty lovely, it's got to be said. A teeming square with a pretty cool statue inside a fountain. It's already nicer than anything we've ever seen in King's Landing. And as we say, it's busy. Lots of people, lots of buyers, lots of sellers, lots of food, apparently. That's pretty key. Almost everywhere we go now, starvation is already setting in. There's just too many mouths to feed, we've seen disease in plenty of places, it all seems like everywhere is on its last feet, whereas White Harbour is apparently still going strong. Yet another point to the Mandalays, they really are good at this. I don't doubt the food and weather problems will hit this city, as it'll hit everywhere eventually, but they are still in the lead currently. Still, Davos notes there are some extra mouths not doing buying and selling, and apparently living in the old mint. To find out more, Davos does something he definitely wouldn't be able to do if he'd turned up on Salador Sound's colourful ship, was walking along with a contingent of guards. He buys an apple, and then he talks about it. Because Davos looks like one of the people, no one of importance and definitely not a threat, he gets some valuable answers. Consider this is actually a pretty rare skill among our POVs, knowing true people and how to talk to them. Tyrion might know people of a certain class, well, but I contend he'd be terrible in this situation. Aya is probably the most comparable, to be honest. Anyway, Davos finds that these are all refugees coming into the city to escape fighting and violence from elsewhere. Well, we're pretty used to that, we've seen plenty of refugees in our time, but they're normally a bigger nuisance than these lot. According to this apple seller, they've come south because of Ramsay, who's been terrorising them, something Roos will reprimand him for later on. Seeing as we had Fionn's chapter earlier today, we know exactly what Ramsay's terrorising exactly looks like, and well, we can hardly blame them for running away. Because he's awesome, and again, one of the people, Davos does what almost every other lord and a fair share of POVs would never do. He thinks on how his actions are going to affect the small folk. Davos felt a pang of guilt. They came here for refuge, to a city untouched by the fighting, and here I am, to drag them back into the war. We love you anyway, Davos, for the fort alone is more than most people get. The apple seller also tells that any young man can enter into the garrison if he can hold a spear. So Davos again sees preparation for war, and again sees how this could be very, very good, or very, very bad, depending on who Wyman orders them to point the spears at. It all rests on this single decision that he is hopefully not too late to influence. Unfortunately, the apple seller has spent with usefulness when Davos asks more direct questions about Wyman's intentions or whether marriage contracts have been reached, but he's still got some good info out of him. 
Davos moves on, knowing several places he could go for a drink, but ending up in the Lazy Eel, a place he knows from the olden days and has a bit of a reputation as basically a dump. It lives up to that reputation as an out-of-the-way, greasy, salt-of-the-earth type of place and exactly what Davos wants. No Snoopy officers watching him, no guards, not even many locals. Just him, a cup of wine and some time to kill. While he waits, Davos finds himself reflecting on fire. The fire that Melisandre can glean the future from. The fire that took his sons on the Blackwater. Fire seems to be a large part of Davos' storyline, even if it is yet to touch him himself. Remember what happened to his former cellmate, and what will one day happen to little Shireen. Davos tries and fails to make sense of it all. What does it all mean when you get down to it? Why is he here when his sons are not? He's asked this very question many times before, especially at the beginning of Storm. It's part of the survivor's guilt, and of course it never completely goes away. Again, like in Storm, Davos tries to figure his purpose. He's come to a position of importance, but he never particularly sought it. Perhaps it was all about saving Edric Storm, and you get the feeling that if he was told it was, it was all to save the life of one innocent boy, Davos would nod and say, well that's alright then. Edric is now supposedly safe, and he needs a new purpose. Stannis is the obvious answer, but for Davos, there can always be more. It has to mean something. Whether he believes in this is all a high prophecy, or simply that Stannis would be the best king for all, he thinks it's the right thing to do. But re-readers know he may well be saving the life of another young boy before long. Whichever it is, right now, everything is about White Harbour. Davos's choice of location soon becomes clear as he leans back in the shadows while the patrons slowly sidle in. Seamen were the worst gossips in the world when the wine was flowing, even wine as cheap as this. All he need do was listen. This is a smart man, everybody. He knows locals won't be able to provide all that he needs to hear, or have the motivation to speak about it anyway. Sailors who are desperate to tell some stories to someone different than their own crew, though, they're all for it. Initially, what we learn is basically a recap of the Feast for Crows. Stinky dead Tywin, Littlefinger ruling but also challenged, the clamouring for the sea stone chair, the supposed hound ravaging the Riverlands. We even get a little hint of what's happening in Essos. Interesting, but not really of use to Davos. The next paragraph is much better. Robert Glover of Deepwood Mott has been in the city trying to raise men to keep the war against the Ironborn going, but has been failing because the city is tired of war. Well, that's not good for Davos, but it is for us rereaders as we begin setting the seeds for Davos's final chapter. Unfortunately, tidings get worse. The Ironborn are being thrown back, and if they are gone, the Northmen will have that much less use for Stannis. Worse still, many of the houses have fallen with Ramsay and the Boltons, some Hornwoods and Sirwins, as well as Hofort Umber. These were the families with the most cause to hate the Boltons, refuse to join them and make common cause of Stannis instead. So if they are gone, well, it's not good news for the campaign trail. As we go through Dance, we'll discover that yes, the Hornwoods and Sirwins and the other smaller houses have joined with the Boltons, but it's only through necessity. For most of them, they were never that large to begin with and have had their numbers drastically reduced by the War of the Five Kings. Most have basically had all of their leaders and nobles killed as well, and they have no one in charge. And some of them lie the closest to the Dreadfort, so not joining up, would have some incredibly dire consequences. Luckily, some of this will start to prove out once they're all penned up in Winterfell and then tensions begin to rise. Again, I know I've been saying it a lot, but this is something else I had to explore a lot for the Castle's book and that final Winterfell chapter. Fingers crossed that they'll take their chance when it comes and fight against the Boltons for a win, as I predict. I think Winterfell turns it into a northern bloodbath before Stannis even gets over the walls, personally. Certainly, the Mandleys would be a key component of that, however many of them are left, but none of this is known to Davos yet, so it all sounds like pretty bad news. As the other patrons debate what Wyman will or won't do, or is even capable of doing, his projection of a certain image is certainly working in the Lazy Eel, Davos realises the worst news of all. Stannis is not even part of these conversations. He's not on anybody's list. 
They don't know he's an option, or they don't care. Even his miraculous saving of the wolf and an army of wildlings is not making it into the conversation. And that tells you about the current apathy towards the wall in the north, how unappreciative the people are being. But it's also a matter of geography and priorities. White Harbour is basically never troubled by wildlings or the wall, so at the wrong end of the kingdom. But war, war on their doorstep, that's going to affect all of them. They're right next to the Bolton lands now, so of course they're thinking about that first. But still, bad news for Davos again. Really needing to hear some good news for a change, the Onion Knight decides to get involved after he hears Wyman is essentially being held hostage himself by the fact that the Lannisters have his son. He needs to double check this. He thought her son had been killed, again giving good motivation to join with Stannis. But as we well know from our days with the brothers, and as Davos finds here, Wendell is dead, but Willis is a captive. So, again, bugger. Worse and worse. He had known that Lord Wyman had two sons, but he had thought that both of them were dead. If the Iron Throne has a hostage... No, 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 this is not good news at all. And Davos looks at it from presumably the same viewpoint as Wyman, that of a father. To keep his son safe, he'd do anything. Logically, so would Wyman. So definitely bad news. While Davos has been distracted, the conversation has somehow switched over to the east and Viserys Targaryen. Who knows how the drink has gone to this subject, but we sure know why, as they discuss how you never really know anyone's dead unless you see the body. They even come up with a rather timely example. The old fellow made a face. Prince Viserys weren't the only dragon, were he? Are we sure they killed Prince Rhaegar's son? A baby was. George, come on. Do you remember subtlety, George? This is right after Tyrion 4. It's chapter sequencing at its most blatant. Now, in fairness to the first-time reader, we haven't been given the reason why young Griff would be a king, so George is being smart of his timing of clues, but looking back, yeah, it's pretty damn blatant. The drinkards have already moved on from Rhaegar to talking about his sister, except they can't remember her name. Of all the people to remember, it is Davos Seaworth, who names her Daenerys. It's an odd little note. Davos knows nothing more than a name, he claims anyway, and he's got no real reason to, other than the fact he's a smart guy who apparently likes his history. Despite the fact Davos is involved with a guy who believes himself as Zora High and a priestess of the law, both of whom seem to be occupying the space that Danny may well come to fill, Davos himself and Danny's arc have never seen clothes at all, so it's strange to see her brought up here. We hear about Daenerys and Calf and her three dragons from another patron, and note that George makes sure to mention her purple eyes. Who did we just say had purple eyes in the previous chapter? Davos doesn't buy into all that talk. He only laments trips never taken and promises himself when his job is done and the war is over and all is perfect in the world, he'll finally get back on a ship with his sons and go and see the wonders of the world. Oh, how we hope it can be so, though I don't think any of us are holding our breath. If a character normally dares to think or dream of something like this, it's almost certain it will never happen. Though it's a fair bet he will get to see those dragons at least. He's learned all he can from the lazy eel and decides to leave. Outside in the cold that's not so cold once you've journeyed to the wall, Davos comes to a crossroads. He's heard enough, pretty much all of it bad. So what is he to do now? Which road to take? He even thinks about just going home to his wife. Do it, Davos, do it. To help decide, he remembers the night he left Eastwatch. He thinks back to his old enemy, Axel Florent, and how he mocked Davos for his class yet again, and not so subtly claimed he would fail in his duty as a hand yet again. Davos believes he is a better man than Axel Florent, and he's damn right. But let's just tie up what Davos has learned in this chapter. The phrase have beaten him here to make their argument first. One of them is going to marry Wyman's granddaughter. The Boltons are moving to Moat Kaelin to open the way for Roos and his army. They are supported by several northern houses, including the Umbers. Refugees are entering the city. White Harbour is prepared for attack and defence. And as he sees here, the harbour is full of warships as he expected earlier. But the city is tired of war and Robert Glover has been turned away already. And worst of all, the Lannisters hold Willis Manderley hostage, Wyman's one remaining son. So yet again, bugger would seem the appropriate word. It seems almost as hopeless as can be, but only almost, for Davos Seaworth 
that's not enough. I have come through rain and rack and storm. I will not go back without doing what I came for, no matter how hopeless it seems. He might have lost his fingers and his luck, but he was no ape in velvet. He was a king's hand. So, Davos Seaworth marches right up to the new castle, bangs on the door, and shows off the seal of Stannis Baratheon yet again. I need to see Lord Manderley at once, he said. My business is with him, and him alone. Love or hate Stannis, believe or disbelieve, you have to absolutely adore the conviction and loyalty of his hand. What a chapter. Although, like I hinted that earlier, I must say I almost feel bad for it. Davos 2, by sheer luck of the draw, is included at the end of an episode that includes Danny deciding to lock away her dragons, the reveal of Fionn being alive, Bran meeting Blood Raven, my god, and Tyrion figuring out young Griff is going to be presented as a king and might even beat one. I mean, damn. Way to make this one seem kind of inconsequential. But of course it's not, we know that. Firstly, this is likely to have major effects by the knock-on of putting Davos on the Rickon mission and helping the return of the Starks. But the whole point of it is about a man sticking to his guns and beliefs and duties even in the face of an overwhelming opinion that it won't matter. That's who Davos is. So in some ways it's fitting that he put him against all these big chapters because Davos is always against the big guns and Davos always comes through. Besides, we know the decisions of William Manderley, even if false in nature, are going to be a huge part of this book as we move into Frey Pie and tense Winterfell territory. So true, like I say, the other four chapters might have a claim to larger overall themes, but I don't think we should count Davos 2 out. Like we said right at the beginning, the chances to see Davos walking around of his own free will, in his element and in control of his own decisions, are rare indeed. This might be the best example we ever get. It's a Davos thinking about his sons, thinking about his youth, thinking about how much he likes the place kind of chapter. It's a Davos with his skills on full display and confidence in himself. It might be full of bad news, that's true, but it's full of great Davos. In a book so bleak, this is certainly one of the most enjoyable chapters out there. So appreciate it for what it is, folks. Bloody brilliant. And again, how lucky we are, we don't have to wait long to see him again. And that, fellow green folk, is the end of Davos 2 and the end of our five, yeah, five chapters today. Thank you so much for sticking with it and sticking through. They are very, very important chapters. I hope you like the notes on them. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. Let me just say thank you everyone for listening of course for the downloading etc etc to all our wonderful patrons again we've had some newbies this week so thank you very much welcome aboard you know where to rate and review and have a look at patreon and the comics discussion we're having you know where you can reach me so we'll finish with letting you know what's going to be happening next week when we go back to four chapters as if that's going to make it any less information for us we will begin with again like this week Daenerys it's going to be Daenerys free when all the problems of Marine suddenly expand out into all these other cities coming back to Winter, unfortunately. Then, surprise, surprise, we have a Daenerys next to Jon. It's Jon 4, where Jon has to help out with the plan of taking the North. Again, we're really looking at this Northern War. Again, it's, it's really, really being promoted in these couple of chapters. From there, it's Tyrion 5. Where Tyrion uses this new knowledge that he's learned today, but it's also a bit of a creepy chapter, a bit of a confusing chapter on rivers and mists, and then the Stone Men. And finally, as with today, three weeks in a row, we get a Davos. It's Davos free, it is in the Merman's court, the Freys are there, Wyla Mandalay's there, Wyla Mandalay's there, she's awesome. We look forward to that, and hopefully you all join us there too. I'm going to let you go, it's a very long podcast. Thank you all so much everybody, great to have you aboard, like I said, we will see you next time. Thanks again. <laughs>